The Fellowship of the Ring by J. R. R. Tolkien, Book One, Chapter One, A Long Expected Party. When Mr. Bilbo Baggins of Bag End announced that he would shortly be celebrating his eleventy-first、uh, birthday with a party of special magnificence, there was much talk and excitement in Hobbiton. Bilbo was very rich and very peculiar, and had been the wonder of the Shire for sixty years, ever since his remarkable disappearance and unexpected return. The riches he had brought back from his travels had now become a local legend, and it was popularly believed, whatever the old folk might say, that the hill at Bag End was full of tunnels stuffed with treasure. And if that was not enough for fame, there was also his prolonged vigour to marvel at. Time wore on, but it seemed to have little effect on Mister Baggins. At ninety, he was much the same as fifty. At ninety-nine, they began to call him well-preserved, but unchanged would have been nearer the mark. There were some who shook their heads and thought it was too much of a good thing. It seemed unfair that any one should possess, apparently, perpetual youth as well as, reputedly, inexhaustible wealth. It will have to be paid for, they said. It isn't natural, and trouble will come of it. But so far, trouble had not come, and Mister Baggins was generous with his money. Most people were willing to forgive him for his oddities and his good fortune. He remained on visiting terms with his relatives, except, of course, for the Sackville Bagginses, and he had many devoted admirers among the hobbits of poor and unimportant families. But he had no close friends, until some of his younger cousins began to grow up. The eldest of these, and Bilbo's favourite, was young Frodo Baggins. When Bilbo was ninety-nine, he adopted Frodo as his heir and brought him to live at Bag End. And the hopes of the Sackville Bagginses were finally dashed. Bilbo and Frodo happened to have the same birthday, September the twenty-second. "You'd better come and live here, Frodo, my lad," said Bilbo one day. And then we can celebrate our birthday parties comfortably together. At that time, Frodo was still in his teens, as the hobbits called the irresponsible twenties between childhood and coming of age at thirty-three. Twelve more years passed. Each year, the Bagginses had given very lively combined birthday parties at Bag End, but now it was understood that something quite exceptional. Was being planned for that autumn. Bilbo was going to be eleventy-one, a hundred and eleven, a rather curious number and a very respectable age for a hobbit. The old Took himself only reached a hundred and thirty, and Frodo was going to be thirty-three, an important number, the date of his coming of age. Tongues began to wag in Hobbiton and Bywater. And the rumor of the coming event travelled all over the Shire. The history and character of Mister Bilbo Baggins became once again the chief topic of conversation, and the older folks suddenly found their reminiscences in welcome demand. No one had a more attentive audience than Old Ham Ganji, commonly known as the Gaffer. 
He held forth at the ivy bush, a small inn on Bywater Road, and he spoke with some authority, for he had tended the garden at Bag End for forty years, and had helped old Holman in the same job before that. Now that he himself was growing old and stiff in the joints, the job was mainly carried out by his youngest son, Sam Ganji. Both father and son were on very friendly terms with Bilbo and Frodo. They lived on the hill itself in number three, Bagshot Row, just below Bag End. A very nice, well-spoken, gentle hobbit is Mr Bilbo, as I've always said, the gaffer declared. With perfect truth, for Bilbo was very polite to him, calling him Master Hamfast, and consulting him constantly upon the growing of vegetables, in the matter of roots, especially potatoes. The gaffer was recognised as the leading authority by all in the neighbourhood, including himself. And what about this Frodo that lives with him? asked all Noakes of Bywater. Baggins is his name, but he's more than half a brandy book, they say. It beats me why any Baggins of Hobbiton should go looking for a wife away there in Buckland, where folks are so queer. And there's no wonder they're queer, put in Dandy Twofoot, the gaffer's next-door neighbour. If they live on the wrong side of Brandywine River and right again the old forest, that's a dark, bad place if half the tales be true. You're right, Dad, said the gaffer. Not that the brandy bucks of Buckland live in the old forest, but they're a queer breed, seemingly. They fall about with boats on that big river, and that isn't natural. Small wonder that trouble came of it, I say. But be that as it may, Mr Frodo is as nice a young hobbit as you could wish to meet. Very much like Mr Bilbo, and in more than looks. After all, his father was a Baggins, a decent, respectable hobbit, was Mr Drogo Baggins. There was never much to tell of him till he was drowned. Drowned? said several voices. They had heard this and other darker rumours before, of course, but hobbits have a passion for family history and they were ready to hear it again. Well, as they say, said the gaffer, you see, Mr Drogo, he married poor Miss Prunella Brandybuck. She was our Mr Bilbo's first cousin on the mother's side, her mother being the youngest of the old Took's daughters, and Mr Drogo was his second cousin. So Mr Frodo is his first and second cousin, once removed, either way, as the saying is, if you follow me. And Mr Drogo was staying at Brandy Hall with his father-in-law, old Master Gorbadoc, as he often did after his marriage, him being partial to his vitals and old Gorbadoc keeping a mighty generous table. And he went out bolting on Brandywine River, and he and his wife were drowned, and poor Mr Frodo only a child and all. I've heard that they went out on the water after dinner in the moonlight, said old Noakes, and it was Drogo's weight as sunk the boat. I heard she pushed him in, and he pulled her in after him, said Sandyman, the Hobbiton Miller. You shouldn't listen to all you hear, Sandyman, said the gaffer, who did not much like the miller. There isn't no call to go talking of pushing and pulling. Boats are quite tricky enough for those that sit still without looking further for the cause of trouble. Anyway, there was this Mr Frodo, left an orphan and stranded, 
as you might say, among those queer Bucklanders being brought up anyhow in Brandy Hall. A regular warren by all accounts. Old Master Gorbalock never had fewer than a couple of hundred relations in the place. Mr Bilbo never did a kinder deed than when he brought the lad back to live among decent folk. But I reckon it was a nasty knock for those Sackville Bagginses. They thought they were going to get bag end that time he went off and was thought dead. And then he comes back and orders them off, and he goes on living and living and never looking a day older, bless him. And suddenly he produces an heir and has all the papers made out proper. The Sackville Bagginses won't never see the inside of Bag End now, or it is to be hoped not. There's a tidy bit of money tucked away up there, I hear tell, said a stranger, a visitor on business from Mitchell Delphin in West Farvin. All oh, the top of your hill is full of tunnels packed with chests of gold and silver and jewels, by what I've heard. Then you've heard more than I can speak to, answered the gaffer. I know nothing about jewels. Mr Bilbo is free with his money, and there seems no lack of it. But I know of no tunnel-making. I saw Mr Bilbo when he came back, a matter of sixty years ago when I was a lad, and I'd not long come to prentice old Holman, him being my dad's cousin. But he had me up at Bag End helping him to keep the folks from trampling and trespassing all over the garden while the sale was on. And in the middle of it all, Mr Baggin comes up to the hill with a pony and some mighty big bags and a couple of chests. I don't doubt they were mostly full of treasure he had picked up in foreign parts, where there be mountains of gold, they say, but there wasn't enough to fill tunnels. But my lad Sam will know more about that. He's in and out of Bag End. Crazy about stories of the old days, he is, and he listens to Mr Bilbo's tales, Mr Bilbo has learned him his letters, meaning no harm, mark you, and I hope no harm will come of it. Elves and dragons, I says to him. Cabbages and potatoes are better for me and you. Don't go getting mixed up in the business of your betters, or your land in trouble too big for you, I says to him. And I might say it to others, he added, with a look at the stranger and the miller. But the gaffer did not convince his audience, the legend of Bilbo's wealth was now too firmly fixed in the minds of the younger generation of hobbits. Aye, but he's likely enough been adding to what he bought first, argued the miller, voicing common opinion. He's often away from home, and look at the outlandish folk that visit him, dwarfs coming at night, and that old wandering conjurer, Gandalf and all. You can say what you like, Gaffer, but Bag End is a queer place, and it's folk are queerer. And you can say what you like about what you know no more of than you do of boating, Mr Sandyman, retorted the gaffer, disliking the miller even more than usual. If that's being queer, then we could do with a bit more queerness in these parts. There's some not far away that wouldn't offer a pint of beer to a friend if they lived in a hole with golden walls. But they do things proper at Bag End. Our Sam says that everyone's going to be invited to the party, and there's going to be presents, mark you. Presents for all. This very month, as is. That very month was September, and as fine as you could ask. A day or two later, a rumour, 
probably started by the knowledgeable Sam, was spread about that there was going to be fireworks. Fireworks, what is more, such as had not been seen in the Shire for nigh on a century, not indeed since the old Took died. Days passed, and the day drew nearer. An odd-looking wagon laden with odd-looking packages rolled into Hobbington one evening and toiled up the hill to Bag End. The startled hobbits peered out of lamp-lit doors to gape at it. It was driven by outlandish folk singing strange songs, dwarfs with long beards and deep hoods. A few of them remained at Bag End. At the end of the second week in September, a cart came in through Bywater from the direction of Brandywine Bridge in broad daylight. An old man was driving it all alone. He wore a tall pointed blue hat, a long grey cloak and a silver scarf. He had a long white beard and bushy eyebrows that struck out beyond the brim of his hat. Small hobbit children ran after the cart all through Hobbington and right up the hill. It had a cargo of fireworks, as they rightly guessed. At Bilbo's front door, the old man began to unload. There were great bundles of fireworks of all sorts and shapes, each labelled with a large red G and an elf rune. That was Gandalf's mark, of course, and the old man was Gandalf the wizard, whose fame in the Shire was due mainly to his skill with fires, smoke and lights. His real business was far more difficult and dangerous, but the Shire folk knew nothing about it. To them, he was just one of the attractions at the party. Hence the excitement of the Hobbit children. Gee, for grand, they shouted, and the old man smiled. They knew him by sight, though he only appeared in Hobbiton occasionally and never stopped long. But neither they nor any but the oldest of the elders had seen one of his firework displays. They now belonged to a legendary past. When the old man, helped by Bilbo and some dwarfs, had finished unloading, Bilbo gave a few pennies away, but not a single squib or cracker was forthcoming to the disappointment of the onlookers. Run away now, said Gandalf. You'll get plenty when the time comes. Then he disappeared inside with Bilbo, and the door was shut. The young hobbit stared at the door in vain for a while, and then made off, feeling that the day of the party would never come. Inside Bag End, Bilbo and Gandalf were sitting at the open window of a small room looking out west to the garden. The late afternoon was bright and peaceful. The flowers glowed red and golden, snapdragons and sunflowers, and the Nasturians trailing all over the turf walls and peeping in at the round windows. How bright your garden looks, said Gandalf. Yes, said Bilbo. I'm very fond indeed of it, and of all the dear old Shire. But I think I need a holiday. You mean to go on with your plan, then? I do. I made up my mind months ago, and I haven't changed it. Very well. It's no good saying any more. Stick to your plan. Your whole plan, mind, and I hope it will turn out for the best, for you and for all of us. I hope so. 
Anyway, I mean to enjoy myself on Thursday and have my little joke. <sighs> Who will laugh, I wonder, said Gandalf, shaking his head. <clears throat> We shall see, said Bilbo. The next day more carts rolled up the hill, and still more carts. There might have been some grumbling about dealing locally, but that very week orders began to pour out of Bag End for every kind of provision, commodity or luxury that could be obtained in Hobbiton, or Bywater, or anywhere in the neighbourhood. People became enthusiastic, and they began to tick off the days on the calendar, and they watched eagerly for the postman, hoping for invitations. Before long, the invitations began pouring out, and the Hobbiton post office was blocked, and the Bywater post office was snowed under, and the voluntary assistant postman was called for. There was a constant stream of them going up the hill, carrying hundreds of polite variations of, Thank you, I shall certainly come. A notice appeared on the gate at Bag End, No admittance except on party business. Even those who had or pretended to have party business were seldom allowed inside. Bilbo was busy writing invitations, ticking off answers, packing up presents and making some private preparations of his own. From the time of Gandalf's arrival, he remained hidden from view. One morning, the hobbits woke to find the large field, south of Bilbo's front door, covered with ropes and poles for tents and pavilions. A special entrance was cut into the bank leading to the road, and wide steps and a large white gate were built there. The three hobbit families of Bagshot Row adjoining the field were intensely interested and generally envied. Old Gaffer Gamgee stopped even pretending to work in his garden. The tents began to go up. There was a specially large pavilion, so big that the tree that grew in the field was right inside it and stood proudly near one end at the head of the chief table. Lanterns were hung all about its branches, more promising still to the hobbit's mind. An enormous open-air kitchen was erected in the north corner of the field. A draught of cooks from every inn and eating house for miles around arrived to supplement the dwarfs and other odd folk that were quartered at Bag End. Excitement rose to its height. Then the weather clouded over. That was on Wednesday, the eve of the party. Anxiety was intense. Then Thursday, September the 22nd, actually dawned. The sun got up, the clouds vanished, flags were unfurled, and the fun began. Bilbo Baggins called it a party, but it was really a variety of entertainments rolled into one. Practically everybody living near was invited. A very few were overlooked by accident, but as they turned up all the same, that did not matter. Many people from other parts of the Shire were also asked, and there were even a few from outside the borders. Bilbo met the guests and additions at the new white gate in person. He gave away presents to all and sundry, The latter were those who went out again by a back way and came in again by the gate. Hobbits give presents to others on their own birthdays. Not very expensive ones, as a rule, and not so lavishly as on this occasion. But it was not a bad system, 
Actually, in Hobbiton and Bywater, every day in the year was somebody's birthday, so that every hobbit in those parts had a fair chance of at least one present at least once a week. But they never got tired of them. On this occasion, the presents were unusually good. The hobbit children were so excited that for a while they almost forgot about eating. There were toys the like of which they had never seen before, all beautiful and some obviously magical. Many of them had indeed been ordered a year before and had come all the way from the mountain and from dale and were real dwarf make. When every guest had been welcomed and was finally inside the gate, there were songs, dances, music, games, and of course food and drink. There were three official meals. Lunch, tea, and dinner or supper, but lunch and tea were marked chiefly by the fact that at those times all the guests were sitting down and eating together. At other times, there were merely lots of people eating and drinking continually from elevenses until six thirty, when the fireworks started. The fireworks were by Gandalf; they were not only brought by him, but designed and made by him. And the special effects, set pieces, and flights of rockets were let off by him, but there was also a generous distribution of squibs, crackers, back wrappers, sparklers, torches, dwarf candles, elf fountains, goblin barkers, and thunderclaps. They were all superb. The art of Gandalf improved with age. There were rockets like a flight of scintillating birds singing with sweet voices. There were green trees with trunks of dark smoke. Their leaves opened like a whole spring unfolding in a moment, and their shining branches dropped glowing flowers down upon the astonished hobbits, disappearing with a sweet scent just before they touched their upturned faces. There were fountains of butterflies that flew glittering in the trees. There were pillars of coloured fires that rose and turned into eagles or sailing ships, or a phalanx of flying swans. There was a red thunderstorm and a shower of yellow rain. There was a forest of silver spears that sprang suddenly into the air with a yell like an embattled army that came down again into the water with a hiss like a hundred hot snakes. And there was also one last surprise in honour of Bilbo, and it startled the hobbits exceedingly, as Gandalf intended. The lights went out; a great smoke went up. It shaped itself like a mountain seen in the distance, and began to glow at the summit. It spouted green and scarlet flames. Out flew a golden dragon, not half size, but terribly lifelike. Fire came out of its jaws. Its eyes glared down. There was a roar, and he whisked three times over the heads of the crowd. They all ducked, and many fell on their faces. The dragon passed like an express train, turned a somersault, and burst over Bywater with a deafening explosion. <laughs> That's the signal for supper," said Bilbo. The pain and alarm vanished at once, and the prostrate hobbits leaped to their feet. There was a splendid supper for everyone, for everyone that is, except those invited to the special family dinner party, which was held in the great pavilion with the tree. The invitations were limited to twelve dozen, a number also called by the hobbits one gross. 
though the word was not considered proper to use of people, and the guests were selected from all the families to which Bilbo and Frodo were related, and the addition of a few special and related friends, such as Gandalf. Many young hobbits were included, and present by parental permission, for hobbits were easy going with their children in the manner of sitting up late, especially when there was a chance of getting a free meal. Bringing up young hobbits took a lot of provender. There were many bagginses and boffins, and also toques and brandybucks. There were various grubs, relations of Bilbo's grandmother, and various chubs, connections to his toque grandfather, and a selection of burrises, bulgers, brace girdles, brockhouses, good bodies, hornblowers, and proud foots. Some of these were only very distantly connected with Bilbo, and some had hardly ever been in Hobbiton before, as they lived in remote corners of the Shire. The Sackfield Bagginses were not forgotten. Ofo and his wife Lobelia were present. They disliked Bilbo and detested Frodo, but so magnificent was the invitation card written in golden ink that they had felt it was impossible to refuse. Besides, their cousin Bilbo had been specialising in food for many years and his table had a high reputation. All the 144 guests expected a pleasant feast, though they rather dreaded the after-dinner speech of their host, an inevitable item. He was liable to drag in bits of what he called poetry, and sometimes after a glass or two would allude to the absurd adventures of his mysterious journey. The guests were not disappointed. They had a very pleasant feast. In fact, an engrossing entertainment, rich, abundant, varied and prolonged. The purchase of provisions fell almost to nothing throughout the district in the ensuing weeks. But as Bilbo's catering had depleted the stocks of most of the stores, cellars and warehouses for miles around, that did not matter much. After the feast, more or less, came the speech. Most of the company were, however, now in a tolerant mood at that delightful stage which they called filling up the corners. They were sipping their favourite drinks and nibbling at their favourite dainties, and their fears were forgotten. They were prepared to listen to anything and to cheer at every full stop. My dear people, began Bilbo, rising in his place. Hear, 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 they shouted, and kept on repeating it in chorus, seeming reluctant to follow their own advice. Bilbo left his place and went and stood on a chair under the illuminated tree. The light of the lanterns fell on his beaming face, the golden buttons shone on his embroidered silk waistcoat. They could all see him standing, waving one hand in the air, and the other was in his trouser pocket. My dear bagginses and boffins, he began again, and my dear tooks and brandybucks and grubs and chubs and burrosies and hornblowers and bulgers, brace curdles, good bodies, brockhouses and proudfoots. Proud feet, shouted an elderly hobbit from the back of the pavilion. His name, of course, was Proudfoot, and well merited. His feet were large, exceptionally furry, and both were on the table. Proud foots, repeated Bilbo. Also my good Sackville Bagginses, that I welcome back at last to Bag End. 
Today is my one hundred and eleventh birthday. I am eleventy-one today. Hooray! Hooray! Many happy returns! They shouted, and they hammered joyously on the tables. Bilbo was doing splendidly. This was the sort of stuff they liked, short and obvious. I hope you are all enjoying yourself as much as I am. Deafening cheers, cries of yes and no, noises of trumpets and horns, pipes and flutes, and other musical instruments. There were, as has been said, many young hobbits present. Hundreds of musical crackers had been pulled. Most of them bore the mark Dale on them, which did not convey much to most of the hobbits. But they all agreed they were marvelous crackers. They contained instruments, small but of perfect make and enchanting tones. Indeed, in one corner, some of the young tooks and brandybucks, supposing Uncle Bilbo to have finished, since he had plainly said all that was necessary, now got up an impromptu orchestra and began a merry dance tune. Master Everard Took and Miss Mellalot Brandybuck got on a table and, with bows in their hands, began to dance the Springle Ring—a pretty dance, but rather vigorous. But Bilbo had not finished. Seizing a horn from a youngster nearby, he blew three loud hoots. The noise subsided. I, I shall not keep you long," he cried. Cheers from all the assembly. I have called you all together for a purpose. Something in the way he said this made an impression. There was almost silence, and one or two of the tooks pricked up their ears. Indeed, for three purposes. First of all, to tell you that I am immensely fond of you all, and that eleventy-one years is too short a time to live among such excellent and admirable hobbits. Tremendous outburst of approval. I don't know half of you half as well as I should like, and I like less than half of you half as well as you deserve. This was unexpected and rather difficult. There was some scattered clapping. But most of them were trying to work it out and see if it came to a compliment. Secondly, to celebrate my birthday, cheers again. I should say our birthday, for it is, of course, also the birthday of my heir and nephew, Frodo. He comes of age and into his inheritance today. Some perfunctory clapping by the elders and some loud shouts of Frodo, Frodo, jolly old Frodo from the juniors. The Sackville Bagginses scowled and wondered what was meant by coming into his inheritance. Together we score one hundred and forty-four. Your numbers were chosen to fit this remarkable total. One gross, if I may use the expression. No cheers. This was ridiculous. Many of the guests, and especially the Sackville Baggins, were insulted, feeling sure they had only been asked to fill up the required number, like goods in a package. One gross indeed, vulgar expression. It is also, if I may be allowed to refer to ancient history, the anniversary of my arrival by barrel at Eskarov on the Long Lake. Though the fact that it was my birthday slipped my memory on that occasion, I was only fifty-one then, and birthdays did not seem so important. The banquet was very splendid, however. 
though I had a bad cold at the time. I remember I could only say, thank you very much. <laughs> I now repeat it more correctly. Thank you very much for coming to my little party. Obstinate silence. They all feared that a song or some poetry was now imminent, and they were getting bored. Why couldn't he stop talking and let them drink his health? But Bilbo did not sing or recite. He paused for a moment. Thirdly, and finally, he said, I wish to make an announcement. He spoke this last word so loudly and suddenly that everyone sat up who still could. I regret to announce that, though, as I said, eleventy-one years is far too short a time to spend among you, this is the end. I am going. I am leaving now. Goodbye. He stepped down and vanished. There was a blinding flash of light and all the guests blinked. When they opened their eyes, Bilbo was nowhere to be seen. One hundred and forty-four flabbergasted hobbits sat back speechless. Old Odo Proudfoot removed his feet from the table and stamped. Then there was a dead silence until suddenly several deep breaths. Every Baggins, Boffins, Took, Brandybuck, Grub, Chub, Burrows, Bulger, Bracegirdle, Brockhouse, Goodbody, Hornblower and Proudfoot began to talk at once. It was generally agreed that the joke was in very bad taste and more food and drink were needed to cure the guests of shock and annoyance. He's mad! I always said so! was probably the most popular comment. Even the Tooks, with a few exceptions, thought Bilbo's behaviour was absurd. For the moment, most of them took it for granted that his disappearance was nothing more than a ridiculous prank. But old Rory Brandybuck was not so sure. Neither age nor an enormous dinner had clouded his wits, and he said to his daughter-in-law, Esmeralda, There's something fishy in this, my dear. I believe that mad Baggins is off again, silly old fool. But why worry? He hasn't taken his victuals with him. He called loudly to Frodo to send the wine round again. Frodo was the only one present who had said nothing. For some time he sat silent beside Bilbo's empty chair and ignored all remarks and questions. He had enjoyed the joke, of course, even though he had been in the know. He had difficulty in keeping from laughter at the indignant surprise of the guests, but at the same time he felt deeply troubled. He realised suddenly that he loved the old hobbit dearly. Most of the guests went on eating and drinking and discussing Bilbo Baggins' oddities, past and present, but the Sackville Bagginses had already departed in wrath. Frodo did not want to have any more to do with the party. He gave orders for more wine to be served. Then he got up, drained his own glass silently to the health of Bilbo, and slipped out of the pavilion. As for Bilbo Baggins, even while he was making his speech, he had been fingering the golden ring in his pocket, his magic ring that he kept secret for so many years. As he stepped down, he slipped it on his finger, and he was never seen by any hobbit in Hobbiton again.
He walked briskly back to his hall and stood for a moment, listening with a smile to the din in the pavilion, and to the sounds of merrymaking in other parts of the field. Then he went in. He took off his party clothes, folded up and wrapped in tissue paper his embroidered silk waistcoat, and put it away. Then he put on quickly some old untidy garments and fastened round his waist a worn leather belt. On it he hung a short sword in a battered black leather scabbard. From a locked drawer smelling of mothballs, he took an old cloak and hood. They had been locked up as if they were very precious, but they were so patched and weather-stained that their original colour could hardly be guessed. It might have been dark green. They were rather too large for him. He then went into his study and from a large strong box took out a bundle wrapped in old cloths and a leather-bound manuscript, also a large bulky envelope. The book and bundle he stuffed into the top of a heavy bag that was standing there, already nearly full. Into the envelope he slipped his golden ring and its fine chain, and then sealed it, and addressed it to Frodo. At first he put it on the mantelpiece, but suddenly he removed it and stuck it in his pocket. At that moment the door opened and Gandalf came quickly in. Ah, hello, said Bilbo. I was wondering if you would turn up. I am glad to find you visible, replied the wizard, sitting down in the chair. I wanted to catch you and have a few final words. I suppose you feel that everything has gone off splendidly and according to plan. Yes, I do, said Bilbo. Though that flash was surprising, it quite startled me, let alone the others. A little addition of your own, I suppose. It was. You have wisely kept that ring secret all these years, and it seemed to me necessary to give your guests something else that would seem to explain your sudden vanishment. And would spoil my joke. You are an interfering old busybody, laughed Bilbo. But I expect you know best, as usual. I do, when I know anything. But I don't feel too sure about this whole affair. It has now come to the final point. You have had your joke and alarmed or offended most of your relations and given the whole shire something to talk about for nine days or ninety-nine more likely. Are you going any further? Yes, I am. I feel I need a holiday, a very long holiday, as I have told you before. Probably a permanent holiday. I don't expect I shall return. In fact, I don't mean to, and I have made all the arrangements. I am old, Gandalf. I don't look it, but I am beginning to feel it in my heart of hearts. Well preserved, indeed, he snorted. Why, I feel all thin, sort of stretched, if you know what I mean, like butter that has been scraped over too much bread. That can't be right. I need a change or something. Gandalf looked curiously and closely at him. No, it does not seem right, he said thoughtfully. No, after all, I believe your plan is probably the best. Well, I've made up my mind anyway. 
I want to see mountains again, Gandalf. Mountains, and then find somewhere where I can rest in peace and quiet, without a lot of relatives prying around and a string of confounded visitors hanging on the bell. I might find somewhere where I can finish my book. I have thought of a nice ending for it, and he lived happily ever after to the end of his days. Gandalf laughed. I hope he will, but nobody will read the book, however it ends. Oh, they may in years to come. Frodo has read some already, as far as it has gone. You'll keep an eye on Frodo, won't you? Yes, I will. Two eyes, as often as I can spare them. He would come with me, of course, if I asked him. In fact, he offered to once, just before the party. But he does not really want to yet. I want to see the wild country again before I die, and the mountains. But he is still in love with the Shire, with woods and fields and little rivers. He ought to be comfortable here. I am leaving everything to him, of course, except a few oddments. I hope he will be happy when he gets used to being on his own. It's time he was his own master now. Everything. Said Gandalf, "The ring as well. You agree to that? You remember? Well,、uh, yes, I suppose so." Stammered Bilbo. "Where is it?" "In an envelope, if you must know," said Bilbo impatiently. "There on the mantelpiece." "Well, no. Here it is in my pocket." He hesitated. "Isn't that odd?" Now he said softly to himself. "Yet, after all." Why not? Why shouldn't it stay there? Gandalf looked again very hard at Bilbo, and there was a gleam in his eyes. I think, Bilbo, he said quietly, I should leave it behind. Don't you want to? Well, yes, and no. Now it comes to it, I don't like parting with it at all. I may say, and I don't really see why I should. Why do you want me to? He asked, and a curious change came over his voice. It was sharp with suspicion and annoyance. You are always badgering me about my ring, but you had never bothered me about the other things that I got on my journey. No, but I had to badger you," said Gandalf. "I wanted the truth. It was important. Magic rings are well magical, and they are rare and curious. I was professionally interested in your ring." You may say, and I still am. I should like to know where it is if you go wandering again. Also, I think you have had it quite long enough. You won't need it any more, Bilbo, unless I am quite mistaken. Bilbo flushed, and there was an angry light in his eyes. His kindly face grew hard. Why not? He cried. And what business is it of yours, anyway, to know what I do with my own things? It is my own. I found it. It came to me. Yes, yes," said Gandalf. "But there is no need to get angry. If I am, it is your fault," said Bilbo. "It is mine, I tell you, my own, my precious. Yes, my precious." The wizard's face remained grave and attentive, and only a flicker in his deep eyes showed that he was startled and indeed alarmed. "It has been called that before," he said.
but not by you. But I say it now, and why not? Even if Gollum said the same once, it's not his now, but mine. I shall keep it, I say. Gandalf stood up. He spoke sternly. You will be a fool if you do, Bilbo, he said. You make that clearer with every word you say. It has got far too much hold on you. Let it go, and then you can go yourself and be free. I'll do as I choose and go as I please," said Bilbo obstinately. "Now, now, my dear Hobbit," said Gandalf. "All your long life we have been friends. You owe me something. Come, do as you promised. Give it up." "Well, if you want the ring for yourself, say so," cried Bilbo. "But you won't get it. I won't give my precious away. I tell you." His hand strayed to the hilt of his small sword. Gandalf's eyes flashed. "It will be my turn to get angry soon," he said. "If you say that again, I shall. Then you will see Gandalf the Grey uncloaked." He took a step towards the Hobbit, and he seemed to grow tall and menacing. His shadow filled the little room. Bilbo backed away to the wall, breathing hard, his hand clutching at his pocket. They stood. For a while, facing one another, and the air in the room tingled. Gandalf's eyes remained bent on the Hobbit. Slowly, his hands relaxed, and he began to tremble. I don't know what has come over you, Gandalf," he said. "You have never been like this before. What is it all about? It is mine, isn't it? I found it, and Gollum would have killed me if I hadn't kept it. I'm not a thief, whatever he said. I never called you one," Gandalf answered, "and I am not one either. I am not trying to rob you, but to help you. I wish you would trust me as you used to." He turned away, and the shadow passed. He seemed to dwindle again to an old grey man, bent and troubled. Bilbo drew his hand over his eyes. "I am sorry," he said. But I felt so queer, and yet it would be a relief, in a way, not to be bothered with it any more. It has been so growing on my mind lately. Sometimes I have felt that it was like an eye looking at me, and I am always wanting to put it on and disappear. Don't you know? Or wondering if it is safe, and pulling it out just to make sure. I tried locking it up, but I found I couldn't rest without it in my pocket. I don't know why, and I don't seem able to make up my mind. Then trust mine," said Gandalf. "It is quite made up. Go away and leave it behind. Stop possessing it. Give it to Frodo, and I will look after him." Bilbo stood for a moment, tense and undecided. Presently, he sighed. "All right," he said with an effort. "I will." Then he shrugged his shoulders and smiled rather ruefully. After all, that's what this party business was all about, really—to give away lots of birthday presents and somehow make it easier to give it away at the same time. It hasn't made it any easier in the end, but it would be a pity to waste all my preparations 
it would quite spoil the joke. Indeed, it would take away the only point I ever saw in the affair, said Gandalf. Very well, said Bilbo. It goes to Frodo with all the rest. He drew a deep breath. And now I really must be starting or someone else will catch me. I have said goodbyes and I couldn't bear to do it all over again. He picked up his bag and moved to the door. You have still got the ring in your pocket, said the wizard. Well, ah, so I have, cried Bilbo. And my will and all the other documents too. You had better take it and deliver it for me. That will be the safest. No, don't give me the ring, said Gandalf. Put it on the mantelpiece. It will be safe enough there till Frodo comes. I shall wait for him. Bilbo took out the envelope, but just as he was about to set it by the clock, his hand jerked back, and the packet fell on the floor. Before he could pick it up, the wizard stooped and seized it and set it in its place. A spasm of anger passed swiftly over the hobbit's face again. Suddenly, it gave way to a look of relief and a laugh. <laughs> well, that's that, he said. Now I'm off. They went out into the hall. Bilbo chose his favourite stick from the stand. Then he whistled. Three dwarfs came out of different rooms where they had been busy. Is everything ready? asked Bilbo. Everything packed and labelled? Everything, they answered. Well, let's start then. He stepped out of the front door. It was a fine night and the black sky was dotted with stars. He looked up, sniffing the air. What fun! What fun to be off again, off on the road with dwarfs. This is what I have been really longing for, for years. Goodbye he said, looking at his old home and bowing to the door. Goodbye, Gandalf. Goodbye for the present, Bilbo. Take care of yourself. You are old enough, <laughs> and perhaps wise enough. Take care? <laughs> I don't care. Don't you worry about me. I am as happy now as I have ever been, and that is saying a great deal. But the time has come. I am being swept off my feet at last, he added, and then, in a low voice, as if to himself, he sang softly in the dark. The road goes ever on and on, down from the door where it began. Now far ahead the road has gone, and I must follow if I can, pursuing it with eager feet until it joins some larger way, where many paths and errands meet, and whither then I cannot say. He paused, silent for a moment. Then, without another word, he turned away from the lights and the voices in the field and the tents, and followed by his three companions, went round into his garden and trotted down a long sloping path. He jumped over a low place in the hedge at the bottom and took to the meadows, passing into the night like a rustle of wind in the grass. Gandalf remained for a while, staring after him into the darkness. Goodbye, my dear Bilbo, until our next meeting, he said softly, and then went back indoors. 
Frodo came in soon afterwards and found him sitting in the dark, deep in thought. Has he gone? he asked. Yes, answered Gandalf. He has gone at last. I wish, I mean, I hoped until the evening that it was only a joke, said Frodo. But I knew in my heart that he was really meant to go. He always used to joke about serious things. I wish I had come back sooner just to see him off. I really think he preferred slipping off quietly in the end, said Gandalf. Don't be too troubled. He'll be all right now. He left a packet for you. There it is. Frodo took the envelope from the mantelpiece and glanced at it, but did not open it. You'll find his will and all other documents in there, I think, said the wizard. You are master of Bag End now. And also, I fancy you'll find a golden ring. The ring? exclaimed Frodo. Has he left me that? I wonder why. Still, it may be useful. It may and it may not, said Gandalf. I should not make use of it if I were you, but keep it secret and keep it safe. Now, I am going to bed. As master of Bag End, Frodo felt it his painful duty to say goodbye to the guests. Rumours of strange events had by now spread all over the field, but Frodo would only say, no doubt everything will be cleared up in the morning. About midnight, carriages came for the important folk. One by one, they rolled away, filled with full but unsatisfied hobbits. Gardeners came by arrangement and removed in wheelbarrows those who had inadvertently remained behind. Night slowly passed. The sun rose. The hobbits rose rather later. Morning went on. People came and began, by orders, to clear away the pavilions and the tables and the chairs and the spoons and knives and bottles and plates and the lanterns and the flowering shrubs in boxes and the crumbs and cracker paper, the forgotten bags and gloves and handkerchiefs and the uneaten food, a very small item. Then a number of other people came, without orders, bagginses and boffins and bulgars and tooks and other guests that lived or were staying near. By midday, when even the best fed were out and about again, there was a large crowd at Bag End, uninvited but not unexpected. Frodo was waiting on the steps, smiling, but looking rather tired and worried. He welcomed all the callers, but he had not much more to say than before. His reply to all inquiries was simply this, Mr Bilbo Baggins has gone away, as far as I know, for good. Some of the visitors he invited to come inside, as Bilbo had left messages for them. Inside in the hall, there was piled a large assortment of packages and parcels and small articles of furniture. On every item there was a label tied. There were several labels of this sort. For Adelard took, for his very own, from Bilbo. On an umbrella, Adelard had carried off many unlabelled ones. For Dora Baggins, in memory of a long correspondence with love from Bilbo, on a large waste paper basket. Dora was Drogo's sister and the eldest surviving female relative of Bilbo and Frodo. She was 99 and had written reams of good advice for more than half a century. For Milo Burrows, hoping it will be useful from B.B. on a gold pen and an ink bottle. Milo never answered letters. 
For Angelica's use from Uncle Bilbo on a round convex mirror, she was a beautiful Baggins, and too obviously considered her face shapely. For the collection of Hugo Bracegirdle from a contributor on an old empty bookcase, Hugo was a great borrower of books and worse than usual at returning them. For Lobelia Sackville Baggins as a present, on a case of silver spoons, Bilbo believed she had acquired a good many of his spoons while he was away on his former journey. Lobelia knew that quite well. When she arrived later in the day, she took the point at once, but she also took the spoons. This was only a small selection of the assembled presents. Bilbo's residence had got rather cluttered up with things in the course of his long life. It was a tendency of Hobbit Halls to get cluttered up, for which the custom of giving away so many birthday presents was largely responsible. Not, of course, that the birthday presents were always new. There were one or two old mathems of forgotten uses that had circulated all around the district, but Bilbo had usually given new presents and kept those that he received. The old hall was now being cleared a little. Every one of the various parting gifts had labels, written out personally by Bilbo, and several had some point or some joke. But of course most of the things were given where they would be wanted and welcome. The poorer hobbits, and especially those of Bagshot Row, did very well. Old Gaffer Gamgee got two sacks of potatoes, a new spade, a woollen waistcoat and a bottle of ointment for creaking joints. Old Rory Brandybuck, in return for much hospitality, got a dozen bottles of old vineyards, a strong red wine from the South Farvin, and now quite mature. As it had been laid down by Bilbo's father, Rory quite forgave Bilbo and voted him a capital fellow after the first bottle. There was plenty of everything left for Frodo, and of course all the chief treasures, as well as the books, pictures and more than enough furniture, were left in his possession. There was, however, no sign nor mention of money or jewellery. Not a penny piece or a glass bead was given away. Frodo had a very trying time that afternoon. A false rumour that the whole household was being distributed free spread like wildfire, and before long the place was packed with people who had no business there, but could not be kept out. Labels got torn off and mixed, and quarrels broke out. Some people tried to do swaps and deals in the hall, and others tried to make off with minor items not addressed to them, or anything that seemed unwanted or unwatched. The road to the gate was blocked with barrows and handcarts. In the middle of the commotion, the Sackfield Bagginses arrived. Frodo had retired for a while and left his friend Mary Brandybuck to keep an eye on things. When Ofo loudly demanded to see Frodo, Mary bowed politely. He's indisposed, he said. He is resting. Hiding, you mean, said Lobelia. Anyway, we want to see him, and we mean to see him. Just go and tell him so. Mary left them a long while in the hall, and they had time to discover their parting gift of spoons. It did not improve their tempers. Eventually, they were shown into the study. Frodo was sitting at a table with a lot of papers in front of him. He looked indisposed, to see the Sackville Bagginses at any rate, 
and he stood up, fidgeting with something in his pocket. But he spoke quietly. The Sackfield Bagginses were rather offensive. They began by offering him bargain prices, as between friends, for various valuable and unlabeled things. When Frodo replied that only the things specially directed by Bilbo were being given away, they said the whole affair was very fishy. Only one thing is clear to me, said Ofo, and that is that you are doing exceedingly well out of it. I insist on seeing the wheel. Ofo would have been Bilbo's heir, but for the adoption of Frodo. He read the wheel carefully and snorted. It was unfortunately very clear and correct, according to the legal customs of hobbits, which demand, among other things, seven signatures of witnesses in red ink. Foiled again, he said to his wife, and after waiting sixty years, spoons, fiddlesticks, he snapped his fingers under Frodo's nose and stomped off. But Lobelia was not so easily got rid of. A little later, Frodo came out of the study to see how things were going on, and found her all about the place, investigating nooks and corners, and tapping the floors. He escorted her firmly off the premises. After he had relieved her of several small but rather valuable articles that had somehow fallen inside her umbrella. Her face looked as if she was in the throes of thinking out a really crushing parting remark. But all she found to say, turning round on the step, was, You'll live to regret it, young fellow. Why don't you go too? You don't belong here. You're no baggins. You, you're a brandy buck. Did you hear that, Mary? That was an insult, if you like, said Frodo, as he shut the door on her. It was a compliment, said Mary Brandybuck, and so, of course, not true. Then they went round the hall and evicted three young hobbits, two boffins and a bulger, who were knocking holes in the walls of one of the cellars. Frodo also had a tussle with a young Sancho Proudfoot, old Odo Proudfoot's grandson who had begun an excavation in the larger pantry, where he thought there was an echo. The legend of Bilbo's gold excited both curiosity and hope, for legendary gold, mysteriously obtained if not positively ill-gotten, is, as everyone knows, everyone's for the finding, unless the search is interrupted. When he had overcome Sancho and pushed him out, Frodo collapsed on a chair in the hall. "'It's time to close the shop, Mary,' he said. Lock the doors and don't open it to anyone today. Not even if they bring a battering ram. Then he went to revive himself with a belated cup of tea. He had hardly sat down when there came a soft knock at the front door. Lobelia again, most likely, he thought. She must have thought of something really nasty and have come back again to say it. It can wait. He went on with his tea. The knock was repeated, much louder, but he took no notice. Suddenly the wizard's head appeared at the window. If you don't let me in, Frodo, I shall blow your door right down your hall and out through the hill, he said. My dear Gandalf, half a minute, cried Frodo, running out of the room to the door. Come in, come in. I thought it was Lobelia. Then I forgive you, but I saw her some time ago driving a pony trap towards Bywater, with a face that could have curdled new milk. She had already nearly curdled me. Honestly, I nearly tried on Bilbo's ring. 
I long to disappear. Don't do that, said Gandalf, sitting down. Do be careful of that ring, Frodo. In fact, it is partly about that. I have come to say a last word. Well, what about it? What do you know already? Only what Bilbo told me. I have heard his story, how he found it, and how he used it on his journey, I mean. Which story, I wonder, said Gandalf. Oh, not the one he told the dwarfs and put in his book, said Frodo. He told me the true story soon after I came to live here. He said you had pestered him till he told you. So I had better know too. No secrets between us, Frodo, he said. But they are not to go any further. It's mine, anyway. That's interesting, said Gandalf. Well, what do you think of it all? If you mean inventing all that about a present, well, I thought the true story much more likely, and I couldn't see the point of altering it at all. It was very unlike Bilbo to do so, anyway, and I thought it rather odd. So did I. But odd things may happen to people who have such treasures, if they use them. Let it be a warning to you to be very careful with it. It may have other powers than just making you vanish when you wish to. I don't understand, said Frodo. Neither do I, answered the wizard. I have merely begun to wonder about the ring, especially since last night. No need to worry. But if you take my advice, you will use it very seldom, or not at all. At least I beg you not to use it in any way that will cause talk or rouse suspicion. I say again, keep it safe and keep it secret. You are very mysterious. What are you afraid of? I'm not certain. So I will say no more. I may be able to tell you something when I come back. I'm going off at once. And this is goodbye for the present. He got up. At once, cried Frodo. Why, I thought you were staying for at least a week. I was looking forward to your help. I did mean to, but I have had to change my mind. I may be away for a good while, but I'll come and see you again as soon as I can. Expect me when you see me. I shall slip in quietly. I shan't often be visiting the Shire openly again. I find that I have become rather unpopular. They say I am a nuisance and a disturber of the peace. Some people are actually accusing me of spiriting Bilbo away, or worse. If you want to know, there is supposed to be a plot between you and me to get hold of his wealth. Some people, exclaimed Frodo, you mean Ofo and Lobelia? How abominable. I would give them bag end and everything else if I could get Bilbo back and go off tramping into the country with him. I loved the Shire, but I begin to wish somehow that I had gone too. I wonder if I shall ever see him again. So do I, said Gandalf, and I wonder many other things. Goodbye now. Take care of yourself. Look out for me, especially at unlikely times. Goodbye. Frodo saw him to the door. He gave a final wave of his hand and walked off at a surprising pace. But Frodo thought the old wizard looked unusually bent, almost as if he was carrying a great weight. The evening was closing in, and his cloaked figure quickly vanished into the twilight. Frodo did not see him again for a long time. 
The Fellowship of the Ring by J. R. R. Tolkien, Book One, Chapter Two, The Shadow of the Past. The talk did not die down in nine or even ninety-nine days. The second disappearance of Mister Bilbo Baggins was discussed in Hobbiton and indeed all over the Shire for a year and a day, and was remembered much longer than that. It became a fireside story for young hobbits, and eventually Mad Baggins, who used to vanish with a bang and a flash and reappear with bags of jewels and gold, became a favourite character of legend and lived on long after all the true events were forgotten. But in the meantime, the general opinion in the neighbourhood was that Bilbo, who had always been rather cracked, had at last gone quite mad and had run off into the blue. There he had undoubtedly fallen into a pool or a river and came to a tragic but hardly untimely end. The blame was mostly laid on Gandalf. If only that drat wizard will leave young Frodo alone, perhaps he'll settle down and grow some Hobbit sense. They said, and to all appearance, the wizard did leave Frodo alone, and he did settle down, but the growth of Hobbit sense was not very noticeable. Indeed, he at once began to carry on Bilbo's reputation for oddity. He refused to go into mourning, and the next year he gave a party in honor of Bilbo's one hundred and twelfth birthday, which he called a hundredweight feast. But that was short of the mark, for twenty guests were invited, and there were several meals at which it snowed food and rained drink, as hobbits say. Some people were rather shocked. But Frodo kept up the custom of giving Bilbo's birthday party year after year until they got used to it. He said that he did not think that Bilbo was dead. When they asked, "Where is he then?" he shrugged his shoulders. He lived alone as Bilbo had done, and he had a good many friends, especially among the younger hobbits, mostly descendants of the old Took, who had as children been fond of Bilbo. And often in and out of Bag End, Falco Boffin and Fredegar Borger were two of these. But his closest friends were Peregrine Took, usually called Pippin, and Mary Brandybuck. His real name was Meridoc, but that was seldom remembered. Frodo went tramping over the Shire with them, but more often he wandered by himself. And to the amazement of sensible folk, he was sometimes seen far from home. Walking in the hills and woods under the starlight, Merry and Pippin suspected that he visited elves at times, as Bilbo had done. As time went on, people began to notice that Frodo also showed signs of good preservation. Outwardly, he retained the appearance of a robust and energetic hobbit just out of his tweens. Some folk have all the luck, they said. But it was not until Frodo approached the usually more sober age of fifty that they began to think it queer. Frodo himself, after the first shock, found that being his own master and the Mister Baggins of Bag End was rather pleasant. For some years he was quite happy and did not worry much about the future. But unbeknown to himself, the regret that he had not gone with Bilbo was steadily growing. 
he found himself wondering at times, especially in the autumn, about the wildlands, and the strange visions of mountains that he had never seen came into his dreams. He began to say to himself, Perhaps I shall cross this river myself one day, to which the other half of his mind always replied, Not yet. So it went on, until his forties were running out, and his fiftieth birthday was drawing near. Fifty was a number that he felt was somehow significant, or ominous. It was at any rate at that age that a venture had suddenly befallen Bilbo. Frodo began to feel restless. The old path seemed too well trodden. He looked at maps and wondered what lay beyond their edges. Maps made in the Shire showed mostly white spaces beyond its borders. He took to wandering further afield and more often by himself and Mary and his other friends watched him anxiously. Often he was seen walking and talking with strange wayfarers that began at this time to appear in the Shire. There were rumours of strange things happening in the world outside, and as Gandalf had not at that time appeared or sent any message for several years, Frodo gathered all the news he could. Elves, who seldom walked in the Shire, could now be seen passing westward through the woods in the evening, passing and not returning. But they were leaving Middle-earth and were no longer concerned with its troubles. There were, however, dwarfs on the road in unusual numbers. The ancient east-west road ran through the Shire to its end at Grey Havens, and dwarfs had always used it on their way to their mines in the Blue Mountains. They were the Hobbit's chief source of news from distant parts, and if they wanted any, as a rule dwarfs said little and Hobbits asked no more, but now Frodo often met strange dwarves of far countries, seeking refuge in the west. They were troubled, and some spoke in whispers of the enemy and of the land of Mordor. That name the hobbits only knew in legends of the dark past, like a shadow in the background of their memories. But it was ominous and disquieting. It seemed that the evil power in Mirkwood had been driven out by the White Council only to reappear in greater strength in the old strongholds of Mordor. The Dark Tower has been rebuilt, it was said. From there, the power was spreading far and wide, and away far east and south, there were wars and growing fear. Orcs were multiplying again in the mountains. Trolls were abroad, no longer dull-witted, but cunning and armed with dreadful weapons. And there were murmured hints of creatures more terrible than all these, but they had no name. Little of all this, of course, reached the ears of ordinary hobbits. But even the deafest and most stay-at-home began to hear queer tales, and those whose business took them to the borders saw strange things. The conversation in the Green Dragon at Bywater one evening in the spring of Frodo's 50th year showed that even in the comfortable heart of the Shire, rumours had been heard, though most hobbits still laughed at them. Sam Ganji was sitting in one corner near the fire and opposite him was Ted Sandyman, the miller's son. 
and there were various other rustic hobbits listening to their talk. Queer things you do here these days, to be sure, said Sam. Ah, said Ted, you do if you listen, but I can hear fireside tales and children's stories at home if I want to. No doubt you can, retorted Sam, and I dare say there's more truth in some of them than you reckon. Who invented the stories anyway? Take dragons now. No thank ye, said Ted. I won't. I heard tell of them when I was a youngster, but there's no call to believe in them now. There's only one dragon in Bywater, and that's green, he said, getting a general laugh. All right, said Sam, laughing with the rest. But what about these tree men, these giants as you might call them? They do say that one bigger than a tree was seen up away beyond the North Moors not long back. Who's they? My cousin Hal, for one, he works for Mr Boffin at the Overhill and goes up to the North Farthing for the hunting. He saw one. Says he did, perhaps. Your Hal's always saying he's seen things. And maybe he sees things that ain't there. But this one was as big as an elm tree and walking, walking seven yards to a stride, if it was an inch. Then I bet it wasn't an inch. What he saw was an elm tree, as like as not. But this one was walking, I tell you. There ain't no elm tree on the North Moors. Then Hal can't have seen one, said Ted. And there was some laughing and clapping. The audience seemed to think that Ted had scored a point. All the same, said Sam, you can't deny that others beside our Halfurst have seen queer folk crossing the Shire, crossing it, mind you. There are more that are turned back at the borders. The bounders have never been so busy before. And I've heard tell that elves are moving west. They do say they are going to the harbours, out way beyond the White Towers. Sam waved his arm vaguely. Neither he nor any of them knew how far it was to the sea, past the old towers beyond the western borders of the Shire. But it was an old tradition that away over there stood the grey havens, from which at times elven ships set sail, never to return. They are sailing, sailing, sailing over the sea, and they are going into the west and leaving us, said Sam, half chanting the words, shaking his head sadly, and solemnly. But Ted laughed. Well, that isn't anything new, if you believe the old tales. And I don't see what it matters to me or you. Let them sail. But I warrant you haven't seen them doing it, nor anyone else in the Shire. Well, I don't know, said Sam thoughtfully. He believed he had once seen an elf in the woods, and still hoped to see more one day. Of all the legends he had heard in his early years, such fragments of tales and half-remembered story about the elves as hobbits knew had always moved him most deeply. There are some, even in these parts, as know the fair folk and get news of them, he said. There's Mr Baggins now that I work for. He told me that they were sailing and he knows a bit about elves. And old Mr Bilbo knew more. Many the talk I had with him when I was a little lad. Oh, they're both cracked, said Ted. Leastways old Bilbo was cracked, and Frodo's cracking. If that's where you get your news from, you'll never want for moonshine. Well, friends, I'm off home. Your good health. <laughs>
He drained his mug and went out noisily. Sam sat silent and said no more. He had a good deal to think about. For one thing, there was a lot to do up in the Bag End garden, and he would have a busy day tomorrow if the weather cleared. The grass was growing fast, but Sam had more on his mind than gardening. After a while, he sighed and got up and went out. It was early April, and the sky was now clearing after heavy rain. The sun was down, and a cool, pale evening was quietly fading into night. He walked home under the early stars through Hobbington and up the hill, whistling softly and thoughtfully. It was just at this time that Gandalf reappeared after his long absence. For three years after the party, he had been away. Then he paid Frodo a brief visit, and after taking a good look at him, he went off again. During the next year or two, he had turned up fairly often, coming unexpectedly after dusk and going off without warning before sunrise. He would not discuss his own business and journeys, and seemed chiefly interested in small news about Frodo's health and doings. Then suddenly his visits had ceased. It was over nine years since Frodo had heard or seen him, and he had begun to think that the wizard would never return and had given up all interests in hobbits. But that evening, as Sam was walking home and twilight was fading, there came the once familiar tap on the study window. Frodo welcomed his old friend with surprise and great delight. They looked hard at one another. Ah, well, eh? said Gandalf. You look the same as ever, Frodo. So do you, Frodo replied. But secretly he thought that Gandalf looked older and more careworn. He pressed him for news of himself and of the wide world, and soon they were deep in talk, and they stayed up far into the night. Next morning, after a late breakfast, the wizard was sitting with Frodo by the open window of the study. A bright fire was on the hearth, but the sun was warm and the wind was in the south. Everything looked fresh and the new green of spring was shimmering in the fields and on the tips of the tree's fingers. Gandalf was thinking of a spring nearly eighty years before when Bilbo had run out of Bag End without a handkerchief. His hair was perhaps whiter than it had been then and his beard and eyebrows were perhaps longer and his face more lined with care and wisdom. But his eyes were as bright as ever, and he smoked and blew smoke rings with the same vigour and delight. He was smoking now in silence, for Frodo was sitting still, deep in thought. Even in the light of morning, he felt the dark shadow of the tidings that Gandalf had brought. At last, he broke the silence. Last night... You began to tell me strange things about my ring, Gandalf, he said. And then you stopped because you said that such matters were best left until daylight. Don't you think you had better finish now? You say the ring is dangerous, far more dangerous than I guess. In what way? In many ways, answered the wizard. 
It is far more powerful than I ever dared to think of at first. So powerful that in the end it would utterly overcome anyone of mortal race who possessed it. It would possess him. In Eragon, long ago, many elf rings were made, magic rings, as you call them, and they were, of course, of various kinds, some more potent and some less. The lesser rings were only essays in the craft before it was full grown, and to the elven smiths they were but trifles, yet still to my mind dangerous for mortals. But the great rings, the rings of power, <laughs> they were perilous. A mortal, Frodo, who keeps one of the great rings, does not die, and he does not grow or obtain more life. He merely continues until at last every minute is a weariness, and if he often uses the ring to make himself invisible, he fades. He becomes in the end invisible permanently, and walks in the twilight under the eye of the dark power that rules the rings. Yes, sooner or later, if he is strong or well-meaning to begin with. But neither strength nor good purpose will last. Sooner or later, the dark power will devour him. How terrifying! Said Frodo. There was another long silence. The sound of Sam Ganji cutting the lawn came in from the garden. How long have you known this? Asked Frodo at length. And how much did Bilbo know? Bilbo knew no more than he told you. I am sure. Said Gandalf, he would certainly have never passed on to you anything that he thought would be a danger, even though I promised to look after you. He thought the ring was very beautiful and very useful at need, and if anything was wrong or queer, it was himself. He said it was growing on his mind, and he was always worrying about it, but he did not suspect that the ring itself was to blame. Though he had found out that the thing needed looking after, it did not seem always of the same size or weight. It shrank or expanded in an odd way, and might suddenly slip off a finger where it had been tight. Yes, he warned me of that in his last letter," said Frodo. "So I have always kept it on its chain. Very wise," said Gandalf. But as for his long life, Bilbo never connected it. With the ring at all, he took all the credit for that to himself, and he was very proud of it, though he was getting restless and uneasy. Thin and stretched, he said, a sign that the ring was getting control. How long have you known all this? Asked Frodo again. Known, said Gandalf. I have known much that only the wise know, Frodo. But if you mean known about this ring. Well, I still do not know. One might say, there is a last test to make, but I no longer doubt my guess. When did I first begin to guess? He mused, searching back in memory. Let me see. It was in the year that the White Council drove the Dark Power from Mirkwood, just before the Battle of the Five Armies, that Bilbo found his ring. A shadow fell on my heart then, though I did not know yet what I feared. 
I wondered often how Gollum came by a great ring as plainly as it was. That, at least, was clear from the first. Then I heard Bilbo's strange story of how he won it, and I could not believe it. When I at first got the truth out of him, I saw at once that he had been trying to put his claim to the ring beyond doubt, much like Gollum with his birthday present. The lies were too much alike for my comfort. Clearly, the ring had an unwholesome power that set to work on its keeper at once. That was the first real warning I had that all was not well. I told Bilbo often that such rings were better left unused, but he resented it and soon got angry. There was little else I could do. I could not take it from him without doing greater harm, and I had no right to do so anyway. I could only watch and wait. I might perhaps have consulted Saruman the Wise, but something always held me back. Who is he? Asked Frodo. I have never heard of him before. <laughs> Maybe not, answered Gandalf. Hobbits are, or were, no concern of his. Yet he is great among the wise. He is the chief of my order and the head of the council. His knowledge is deep, but his pride has grown with it, and he takes ill any meddling. The law of the elven rings, great and small. Is his preference. He has long studied it, seeking the lost secrets of their making. But when the rings were debated in the council, all that he would reveal to us of his ring law told against my fears. So my doubt slept, but uneasily. Still, I watched and waited, and all seemed well with Bilbo. And many years passed. Yes, they passed. And seemed not to touch him, he showed no signs of age. The shadow fell on me again, but I said to myself, "After all, he comes of a long-lived family on his mother's side. There is time yet. Wait." And I waited until that night when he left this house. He said and did things then that filled me with a fear that no words of Saruman could allay. I knew at last. That something dark and deadly was at work, and I have spent most of the years since then finding out the truth of it. There wasn't any permanent harm done, was there? Asked Frodo anxiously. He would still get all right in time, wouldn't he? Be able to rest in peace, I mean. He felt better at once, said Gandalf. But there is only one power in this world that knows all about the rings and their effects, and as far as I know, there is no power in the world that knows all about hobbits. Among the wise, I am the only one that goes in for hobbit lore, an obscure branch of knowledge, but full of surprises, soft as butter they can be, and yet sometimes as tough as old tree roots. I think it likely that some would resist the rings far longer than most of the wise would believe. I don't think you need worry about Bilbo. Of course, he possessed the ring for many years and used it, so it might take a long while for the influence to wear off, before it was safe for him to see it again. For instance, 
otherwise he might live on for years, quite happily, just stop as he was when he parted with it. For he gave it up in the end of his own accord, an important point. No, I was not troubled about dear Bilbo any more, once he had let the thing go. It is for you that I feel responsible. Ever since Bilbo left, I have been deeply concerned about you, and about all these charming, absurd, helpless hobbits. It would be a grievous blow to the world if the dark power overcame the shire, if all your kind, jolly, stupid, bulgars, hornblowers, boffins, bracegirdles, and the rest, not to mention the ridiculous bagginses, became enslaved. Frodo shuddered. But why should we be? he asked. And why should he want such slaves? <sighs> to tell you the truth, replied Gandalf, I believe that hitherto, mark you, he has entirely overlooked the existence of hobbits. You should be thankful, but your safety has passed. He does not need you. He has many more useful servants, but he won't forget you again, and hobbits as miserable slaves would please him far more than hobbits happy and free. There is such a thing, as malice and revenge. Revenge, said Frodo. Revenge for what? I still don't understand what all this has to do with Bilbo and myself and our ring. It has everything to do with it, said Gandalf. You do not know the real peril yet, but you shall. I was not sure of it myself when I was last here, but the time has come to speak. Give me the ring for a moment. Frodo took it from his breeches pocket, where it was clasped to a chain that hung from his belt. He unfastened it and handed it slowly to the wizard. It felt suddenly very heavy, as if either it or Frodo himself was in some way reluctant for Gandalf to touch it. Gandalf held it up. It looked to be made of pure and solid gold. Can you see any markings on it? he asked. No, said Frodo. There's none. It's quite plain, and it never shows a scratch or sign of wear. Well then, look. To Frodo's amazement and distress, the wizard threw it suddenly into the middle of the glowing corner of the fire. Frodo gave a cry and groped for the tongs, but Gandalf held him back. Wait, he said in a commanding voice, giving Frodo a quick look from under his bristling brows. No apparent change came over the ring. After a while, Gandalf got up, closed the shutters outside the window and drew the curtains. The room became dark and silent. Though the clank of Sam's shears, now nearer to the windows, could still be heard faintly from the garden. For a moment, the wizard stood looking at the fire. Then he stooped and removed the ring to the hearth with the tongs and at once picked it up. Frodo gasped. It's quite cool, said Gandalf. Take it. Frodo received it on his shrinking palm. It seemed to have become thicker and heavier than ever. Hold it up, said Gandalf, and look closely. As Frodo did so, 
he now saw fine lines, finer than the finest pen strokes, running along the ring, outside and inside, lines of fire that seemed to form letters of a flowing script. They shone piercingly bright and yet remote, as if out of a great depth. I cannot read the fiery letters, said Frodo in a quavering voice. No, said Gandalf, but I can. The letters are elvish, of an ancient mode, but the language is that of Mordor, which I will not utter here. But this in the common tongue is what is said close enough. One ring to rule them all, one ring to find them, one ring to bring them all, and in the darkness bind them. It is only two lines of a verse long known in elvish lore. Three rings for the elven kings under the sky, seven for the dwarf lords in their halls of stone, nine for mortal men doomed to die. One for the Dark Lord on his dark throne, in the land of Mordor, where the shadows lie. One ring to rule them all, one ring to find them, one ring to bring them all, and in the darkness bind them, in the land of Mordor, where the shadows lie. He paused, and then slowly in a deep voice, This is the Master Ring. The one ring to rule them all. This is the one ring that he lost many ages ago, and to the great weakening of his power. He greatly desires it, but he must not get it. Frodo sat silent and motionless. Fear seemed to stretch out a vast hand, like a dark cloud riding in the east and looming up to engulf him. This ring, he stammered, how... How, how on earth did it come to me? Ah, said Gandalf, that is a very long story. The beginnings lie back in the black years, which only the law masters now remember. If I were to tell you all that tale, we should still be sitting here when spring had passed into winter. But last night I told you of Sauron the Great, the Dark Lord. The rumours that you have heard are true. He has indeed risen again and left his hold in Mirkwood and returned to his ancient fastness in the dark tower of Mordor. That name even you hobbits have heard of, like a shadow on the borders of old stories. Always after a defeat and a respite, the shadow takes another shape and grows again. I wish it need not have happened in my time, said Frodo. So do I, said Gandalf, and so do all who live to see such times. But that is not for them to decide. All we have to do is decide what to do with the time that is given us. And already, Frodo, our time is beginning to look black. The enemy is fast becoming very strong. His plans are far from ripe, I think, but they are ripening. We shall be hard put to it. We should be very hard put to it, even if it were not for this dreadful chance. The enemy still lacks one thing to give him strength and knowledge to beat down all resistance, break the last defences and cover all the lands in a second darkness. He lacks the one ring.
the three fairest of all, the elf lords hid from him, and his hand never touched or sullied them. Seven the dwarf kings possessed, but three he has recovered, and the others the dragons have consumed. Nine he gave to mortal men, proud and great, and so ensnared them. Long ago they fell under the dominion of the one, and they became ringraves, shadows under his great shadow, his most terrible servants. Long ago, it is many a year since the nine walked abroad, yet, who knows, as the shadow grows once more, they too may walk again. But come, we will not speak of such things, even in the morning of the Shire. So it is now, the nine he has gathered to himself, the seven also, or else they are destroyed. The three are hidden still, but that no longer troubles him. He only needs the one, for he made that ring himself, it is his. And he let a great part of his own former power pass into it, so that he could rule all the others. If he recovers it, then he will command them all again, wherever they be, even the free, and all that has been wrought with them will be laid bare, and he will be stronger than ever. And this is the dreadful chance, Frodo. He believed that the one had perished, that the elves had destroyed it, as should have been done. But he knows now that it has not perished, that it has been found, so he is seeking it, seeking it, and all his thought is bent on it. It is his great hope and our great fear. Why, why wasn't it destroyed? asked Frodo. And how did the enemy ever come to lose it? If he was so strong and it was so precious to him, he clutched the ring in his hand as if he saw already dark fingers stretching out to seize it. It was never taken from him. The strength of the elves to resist him was greater long ago, and not all men were estranged from them. The men of Westerners came to their aid. That is a chapter of ancient history which it might be good to recall, for there was a sorrow then too. The gathering dark, but great valour and great deeds that were not wholly vain. One day, perhaps, I will tell you all the tale or you shall hear it told in full by one who knows it best. But for the moment, since most of all you need to know how this thing came to you, and that it will be tell enough, this is all that I will say. It was Gilgalad, elven king and Elendil of Westerners, who overthrew Sauron, though they themselves perished in the deed. And Isildur, Elendil's son cut the ring from Sauron's hand and took it for his own. Then Sauron was vanquished and his spirit fled and was hidden for long years until his shadow took shape again in Mirkwood. But the ring was lost. It fell into the great river Anduin and vanished. For Isildur was marching north along the east banks of the river and near the Gladden fields, and was waylaid by the orcs of the mountains, and almost all his folk were slain. He leaped into the waters, but the ring slipped from his finger as he swam. And then the orcs saw him and killed him with arrows.
shadows. Gandalf paused. And there, in the dark pools amid the gladdened fields, the ring passed out of knowledge and legend, and even so much of its history is known now only to a few, and the Council of the Wise could discover no more. But at last I can carry on the story, I think. Long after, but still very long ago, there lived by the banks of the great river on the edge of the wilderland a clever-handed and quiet-footed little people. I guess they were of hobbit kind, akin to the fathers of the fathers of the stores, for they loved the river, and often swam in it, or made little boats of reeds. There was among them a family of high repute, for it was large and wealthier than most, and it was ruled by a grandmother of the folk, stern and wise in old law, such as they had. The most inquisitive and curious-minded of that family was called Smeagol. He was interested in roots and beginnings. He dived into deep pools, he burrowed under trees and growing plants. He tunnelled into green mounds and he ceased to look up at the hilltops or the leaves on the trees or the flowers opening in the air. His head and his eyes were downward. He had a friend called Deagle of similar sort, sharper-eyed but not so quick and strong. On a time they took a boat and went down to the gladden fields where there were great beds of iris and flowering reeds. There Smeagol got out and went nosing about the banks, but Deagle sat in the boat and fished. Suddenly a great fish took his hook, and before he knew where he was, he was dragged out and down into the water to the bottom. Then he let go of his line, for he thought he saw something shining in the riverbed, and holding his breath, he grabbed at it. Then he came up spluttering with weeds in his hair and a handful of mud, and he swam to the bank, and behold, when he washed the mud away, there in his hand lay a beautiful golden ring, and it shone and glittered in the sun, so that his heart was glad. But Smeagol, who had been watching him from behind a tree, and as Deagol gloated over the ring, Smeagol came up softly behind. Give us that Deagle, my love, said Smeagol, over his friend's shoulder. Why, said Deagle, because it's my birthday, my love, and I wants it, said Smeagol. I don't care, said Deagle. I have given you a present already, more than I could afford. I found this and I'm going to keep it. Oh, are you indeed, my love, said Smeagol, and he caught Deagle by the throat and strangled him because the gold looked so bright and beautiful. Then he put the ring on his finger. No one ever found out what had become of Deagle. He was murdered far from home, and his body was cunningly hidden. But Smeagol returned alone, and he found that none of his family could see him when he was wearing the ring. He was very pleased about his discovery, and he concealed it, and he used it to find out secrets, and put his knowledge to crooked and malicious uses. He became sharp-eyed and keen-eared for all that was hurtful. The ring had given him power according to his stature. 
it is not to be wondered at that he became very unpopular and was shunned when visible by all his relations. They kicked him and he bit their feet. He took to thieving and going about muttering to himself and gurgling in his throat. So they called him Gollum and cursed him and told him to go far away. And his grandmother, desiring peace, expelled him from the family and turned him out of her hall. He wandered in the loneliness, weeping a little for the hardness of the world, and he journeyed up the river till he came to a stream that flowed down from the mountains, and he went that way. He caught fish in deep pools with invisible fingers and ate them raw. One day it was very hot, and as he was bending over a pool, he felt a burning on the back of his head, and a dazzling light from the water pained his wet eyes. He wondered at it, for he had almost forgotten about the sun. Then, for the last time, he looked up and shook his fist at her. But as he lowered his eyes, he saw far ahead the tops of the misty mountains, out of which the stream came and he thought suddenly it would be cool and shady under those mountains. The sun would not watch me there. The roots of those mountains must be roots indeed. There must be great secrets buried there that have not been discovered since the beginning. So he journeyed by night up into the highlands, and he found a little cave out of which the dark stream ran, and he wormed his way like a maggot, into the heart of the hills, and vanished out of all knowledge. The ring went into the shadows with him, and even the maker, when his power had begun to grow again, could learn nothing of it. Gollum, cried Frodo, Gollum, do you mean this is the very Gollum creature that Bilbo met? How loathsome! I think it's a sad story, said the wizard, and it might have happened to others, even to some hobbits that I have known. I can't believe that Gollum was connected with hobbits, however distantly, said Frodo, with some heat. What an abominable notion! It is true all the same, replied Gandalf. About their origins, at any rate, I know more than hobbits do themselves, and even Bilbo's story suggests the kinship and there was a great deal in the background of their minds and memories that was very similar. They understood one another remarkably well, very much better than a hobbit would understand, say, a dwarf or an orc or even an elf. Think of the riddles they both knew for one thing. Yes, said Frodo, though other folks besides hobbits ask riddles, and of much of the same sort. And hobbits don't cheat. Gollum meant to cheat all the time. He was just trying to put poor Bilbo off his guard. And I dare say it amused his wickedness to start a game which might end in providing him with an easy victim. But if he lost, would not hurt him. Only too true, I fear, said Gandalf. But there was something else in it. I think you don't see yet. Even Gollum is not wholly ruined. He had proved tougher than even one of the wise would have guessed, as a hobbit might. There was a little corner of his mind that was still his own, and light came through it, as through a chink in the dark, light out of the past. It was actually pleasant. I think to hear a kindly voice again, 
bringing up memories of wind and trees and sun on the grass and such forgotten things. But that, of course, would only make the evil part of him angrier in the end, unless it could be conquered, unless it could be cured. Gandalf sighed. Alas, there is little hope of that for him. Yet not no hope. No, not though he possessed the ring so long, almost as far back as he can remember, for it was long since he had worn it much. In the black darkness it was seldom needed. Certainly he had never faded. He is thin and tough still, but the thing was eaten up his mind, of course, and the torment had become almost unbearable. All the great secrets under the mountains had turned out to be just empty night. There was nothing more to find out, nothing worth doing, only nasty furtive eating and resentful remembering. He was altogether wretched. He hated the dark and he hated the light more. He hated everything and the ring most of all. What do you mean? said Frodo. Surely the ring was his precious and the only thing he cared for. But if he hated it, why didn't he get rid of it or go away and leave it? You ought to begin to understand, Frodo, after all you have heard, said Gandalf. He hated it and loved it, as he hated and loved himself. He could not get rid of it. He had no will left in the matter. A ring of power looks after itself, Frodo. It may slip off treacherously, but its keeper never abandons it. At most, he plays with the idea of handing it on to someone else's care. And that only at an early stage, when it first begins to grip. But as far as I know, Bilbo alone in history has ever gone beyond playing and really done it. He needed all my help too. And even so, he would never have just forsaken it or cast it aside. It was not Gollum, Frodo, but the ring itself that decided things. The ring left him. What, just in time to meet Bilbo, said Frodo? Wouldn't an orc have suited it better? It is no laughing matter, said Gandalf, not for you. It was the strangest event in the whole history of the ring so far. Bilbo's arrival just at that time and putting his hand on it blindly in the dark. There was more than one power at work, Frodo. The ring was trying to get back to its master. It had slipped from Isildur's hand and betrayed him. Then, when a chance came, it caught poor Deagle, and he was murdered, and after that, Gollum, and it had devoured him. It could make no further use of him, he was too small and mean, and as long as it stayed with him, he would never leave his deep pool again. So now, when its master was awake, once more in sending out his dark thought from Mirkwood, it abandoned Gollum, only to be picked up by the most unlikely person imaginable, Bilbo from the Shire. Behind that, there was something else at work beyond any design of the ringmaker. I can put it no plainer than by saying that Bilbo was meant 
to find the ring, and not by its maker, in which case you were also meant to have it. And that may be an encouraging thought. It is not, said Frodo, though I am not sure that I understand you. But how have you learned all this about the ring? And about Gollum? Do you really know it all, or are you just guessing still? Gandalf looked at Frodo, and his eyes glinted. I knew much, and I have learned much, he answered. But I am not going to give an account of all my doings to you. The history of Elendil and Isildur and the One Ring is known to all the wise. Your ring is shown to be that One Ring by the fire writing alone, apart from any other evidence. And when did you discover that? asked Frodo, interrupting. Just now, in this room, of course, answered the wizard sharply. But I expected to find it. I have come back from dark journeys and long search to make that final test. It is the last proof, and all now is only too clear. Making out Gollum's part and fitting it into the gap in the history required some thought. I may have started with guesses about Gollum, but I am not guessing now. I know I have seen him. You have seen Gollum? exclaimed Frodo in amazement. Yes. The obvious thing to do, of course, if one could. I tried long ago, but I have managed it at last. Then what happened after Bilbo escaped from him? Do you know that? Not so clearly. What I have told you is what Gollum was willing to tell, though not, of course, in the way I have reported it. Gollum is a liar, and you have to sift his words. For instance, he called the ring his birthday present, and he stuck to that. He said it came from his grandmother, who had lots of beautiful things of that kind. A ridiculous story. I have no doubt that Smeagol's grandmother was a matriarch, a great person in her way. But to talk of her possessing many elven rings was absurd. And as for giving them away, it was a lie, but a lie with a grain of truth. The murder of Deagle haunted Gollum, and he had made up a defence, repeating it to his precious over and over again as he gnawed bones in the dark until he almost believed it. It was his birthday. Deagle ought to have given the ring to him. It had obviously turned up just so as to be a present. It was his birthday present, and so on and on. I endured him as long as I could, but the truth was desperately important, and in the end I had to be harsh. I put the fear of fire on him, and wrung the true story out of him, bit by bit. Together, with much snivelling and snarling, he thought he was misunderstood and ill-used, but when he had at last told me his history, as far as the end of the riddle game and Bilbo's escape, he would not say any more, except in dark hints. Some other fear was on him, greater than mine. He muttered that he was going to get his own back. People would see if he would stand being kicked and driven into a hole and then robbed. 
Gollum had good friends now, good friends and very strong. They would help him. Baggins would pay for it. That was his chief thought. He hated Bilbo and cursed his name. What is more, he knew where he came from. But how did he find that out? asked Bilbo. Well, as for the name, Bilbo very foolishly told Gollum himself. And after that, it would not be difficult to discover his country once Gollum came out. Oh yes, he came out. His longing for the ring proved stronger than his fear of the orcs or even of the light. After a year or two, he left the mountains. You see, though still bound by desire of it, the ring was no longer devouring him. He began to revive a little. He felt old, terribly old, yet less timid, and he was mortally hungry. Light of sun and moon, he still feared and hated, and he always will, I think. But he is cunning. He found he could hide from daylight and moonshine and make his way swiftly and softly by dead of night with his pale, cold eyes and catch small, frightened or unwary things. He grew stronger and bolder with new food and new air. He found his way into Mirkwood, as one would expect. Is that where you found him? asked Frodo. I saw him there answered Gandalf. But before that, he had wandered far, following Bilbo's trail. It was difficult to learn anything from him for certain, for his talk was constantly interrupted by curses and threats. What had it got in his pockets, he said. It wouldn't say, no precious, little cheat, not a fair question. It cheated first, it did. It broke the rules. We ought to have squeezed it. Yes, precious. We will, precious. That is a sample of his talk. I don't suppose you want any more. I had weary days of it. But from hints dropped among the snarls, I gathered that his padding feet had taken him at last to Eskarov, and even to the streets of Dale, listening secretly and peering. Well... The news of the great events went far and wide in the Wilderland, and many had heard Bilbo's name and knew where he came from. We had made no secret of our return journey to his home in the West. Gollum's sharp ears would soon learn what he wanted. Then why didn't he track Bilbo further? asked Frodo. Why didn't he come to the Shire? Ah, said Gandalf, now we come to it. I think Gollum tried to. He set out and came back westward, as far as the great river, but then he turned aside. He was not daunted by the distance, I am sure. No, something else drew him away. So my friends think. Those that hunted him for me. The wood elves tracked him first. An easy task for them, for his trail was still fresh then. Through Mirkwood and back it led them though they never caught him. The wood was full of the rumour of him, dreadful tales even among the beasts and birds. The woodman said that there was some new terror abroad, a ghost that drank blood. It climbed trees to find nests. It crept into holes to find the young. It slipped through windows to find cradles. 
but at the western edge of Mirkwood, the trail turned away. It wandered off southwards and passed out of the Wood Elves' ken, and was lost. And then I made a great mistake. Yes, Frodo, and not the first, though I fear it may prove the worst. I let the matter be. I let him go, for I had much else to think of at the time, and I still trusted the law of Saruman. Well, that was years ago. I have paid for it since with many dark and dangerous days. The trail was long cold when I took it up again, after Bilbo left here, and my search would have been in vain but for the help I had from a friend, Aragorn the greatest traveller and huntsman of this age of the world. Together we sought for Gollum down the whole length of the Wilderland, without hope and without success. But at last, when I had given up the chase and turned to other paths, Gollum was found. My friend returned out of great perils, bringing the miserable creature with him. What he had been doing, he would not say. He only wept and called us cruel with many a gollum in his throat, and when we pressed him he whined and cringed and rubbed his long hands, licking his fingers as if they pained him, as if he remembered some old torture. But I am afraid there is no possible doubt he had made his slow, sneaking way, step by step, mile by mile, south, down at last to the land of Mordor. A heavy silence fell in the room. Frodo could still hear his heart beating. Even outside, everything seemed still. No sound of Sam's shears could now be heard. Yes, to Mordor, said Gandalf. Alas, Mordor draws all wicked things, and the dark power was bending all to its will to gather them there. The ring of the enemy would leave its mark too, leave him open to the summons, and all the folk were whispering then of the new shadow in the south, and its hatred of the west. There were his fine new friends, who would help him in his revenge. Wretched fool! In that land he would learn much, too much for his comfort, and sooner or later, as he lurked and pried on the borders, he would be caught and taken for examination. That was the way of it, I fear. When he was found, he had already been there long, and was on his way back, on some errand of mischief. But that does not matter much now. His worst mischief was done. Yes, alas, through him, the enemy has learned that the one has been found again. He knows where Isildur fell. He knows where Gollum found his ring. He knows that it is a great ring, for it gave long life. He knows it is not one of the free, for they have never been lost, and they endure no evil. He knows it is not one of the seven or the nine, for they are accounted for. He knows that it is the one, and he has at last heard, I think, of hobbits and the Shire. The Shire 
He may be seeking for it now, if he has not already found out where it lies. Indeed, Frodo, I fear that he may even think that the long unnoticed name of Baggins has become important. This is terrible, cried Frodo, far worse than the worst I imagined from your hints and warnings. Oh, Gandalf, best of friends, what am I to do? For now I am really afraid. What am I to do? What a pity that Bilbo did not stab that vile creature when he had a chance. Pity? It was pity that stayed his hand, pity and mercy not to strike without need. And he has been well rewarded, Frodo. Be sure that he took so little hurt from the evil and escaped in the end because he began his ownership of the ring so, with pity. I am sorry, said Frodo, but I am frightened and I do not feel any pity for Gollum. You have not seen him, Gandalf broke in. No, and I don't want to, said Frodo. I can't understand you. Do you mean to say that you and the elves have let him live on after all those horrible deeds? Now, at any rate, he is as bad as an orc and just an enemy. He deserves death. Deserves it? I dare say he does. Many that live deserve death, and some that die deserve life. Can you give it to them? Then do not be too eager to deal out death in judgment. For even the very wise cannot see all ends. I have not much hope that Gollum can be cured before he dies. But there is a chance of it, and he is bound up with the fate of the ring. My heart tells me that he has some part to play yet, for good or ill, before the end. And when that comes, the pity of Bilbo may rule the fate of many, yours not least. In any case... We did not kill him. He is very old and very wretched. The wood elves have him in prison, but they treat him with such kindness as they can find in their wise hearts. All the same, said Frodo, even if Bilbo could not kill Gollum, I wish he had not kept the ring. I wish he had never found it and that I had not got it. Why did you let me keep it? Why didn't you make me throw it away or, or destroy it? Let you? Make you? said the wizard. Haven't you been listening to all that I have said? You are not thinking of what you are saying. But as for throwing it away, that was obviously wrong. These rings have a way of being found. In evil hands, it might have done great evil. Worst of all, it might have fallen into the hands of the enemy. Indeed, it certainly would, for this is the one, and he is exerting all his power to find it or draw it to himself. Of course, my dear Frodo, it was dangerous for you, and that has troubled me deeply. But there was so much at stake that I had to take some risk, though even when I was far away there has never been a day when the Shire has not been guarded by watchful eyes. As long as you never used it, I did not think that the ring would have any lasting effect on you, not for evil, not at any rate for a very long time. And you must remember that nine years ago, when I saw you last, I still knew little for certain. But why not destroy it? 
as you say, should have been done long ago," cried Frodo. "If you had warned me or even sent me a message, I would have done away with it. Would you? How would you do that? Have you ever tried? No, but I suppose I could hammer it or melt it. Try," said Gandalf. "Try now." Frodo drew the ring out of his pocket again and looked at it. It now appeared plain and smooth, without mark or device that he could see. The gold looked very fair and pure, and Frodo thought how rich and beautiful was its colour, how perfect was its roundness. It was an admirable ring and altogether precious. When he took it out, he had intended to fling it from him into the very hottest part of the fire, but found now that he could not do so. Not without a great struggle, he weighed the ring in his hand, hesitating, and forcing himself to remember all that Gandalf had told him. And then, with an effect of will, he made a movement as if to cast it away, but found that he had put it back in his pocket. Gandalf laughed grimly. "You see, already you too, Frodo, cannot easily let it go." Nor will to damage it, and I could not make you, except by force, which would break your mind. But as for breaking the ring, force is useless. Even if you took it and struck it with a heavy sledgehammer, it would make no dint in it. It cannot be unmade by your hands or by mine. Your small fire, of course, would not melt even ordinary gold. This ring has already passed through it unscathed and even unheated. But there is no smith's forge in this shire that could change it at all. Not even the anvils and furnaces of the dwarfs could do that. It has been said that dragon fire could melt and consume the rings of power. But there is not now any dragon left on earth in which the old fire is hot enough. Nor was there ever any dragon, not even Ankalak and the Black, who could have harmed the One Ring, the Ruling Ring, for that was made by Sauron himself. There is only one way to find the cracks of doom in the depths of Orodruin, the Fire Mountain, and cast the ring in there. If you really wish to destroy it, to put it beyond the grasp of the enemy for ever, I really do wish to destroy it," cried Frodo. "Oh, well, to have it destroyed! I am not made for perilous quests. I wish I had never seen the ring. Why did it come to me? Why was I chosen? Such questions cannot be answered," said Gandalf. You may be sure that it was not for any merit that others do not possess, not for power or wisdom, at any rate. But you have been chosen. You must therefore use such strength and heart and wits as you have. But I have so little of any of these things. You are wise and powerful. Will you not take the ring? No," cried Gandalf, springing to his feet. With that power, I should have power too great and terrible, and over me the ring would gain a power still greater and more deadly. His eyes flashed, and his face was lit by the fire within. Do not tempt me, 
for I do not wish to become like the Dark Lord himself. Yet the way of the ring to my heart is by pity, pity for weakness, and the desire of strength to do good. Do not tempt me, I dare not take it, not even to keep it safe, unused. The wish to wield it would be too great for my strength. I shall have such need of it. Great perils lie before me. He went to the window and drew aside the curtains and the shutters. Sunlight streamed back into the room. Sam passed along the path outside whistling. And now, said the wizard, turning back to Frodo, the decision lies with you, but I will always help you. He laid his hand on Frodo's shoulder. I will help you bear this burden as long as it is yours to bear. But we must do something soon. The enemy is moving. There was a long silence. Gandalf sat down again and puffed at his pipe as if lost in thought. His eyes seemed closed, but under the lids he was watching Frodo intently. Frodo gazed fixedly at the red embers on the hearth until they filled all his vision, and he seemed to be looking down into profound wells of fire. He was thinking of the fabled cracks of doom and the terror of the fiery mountain. Well, said Gandalf at last, what are you thinking about? Have you decided what to do? No, answered Frodo, coming back to himself out of darkness and finding to his surprise that it was not dark and that out of the window he could see the sunlit garden. Or perhaps, yes, as far as I understand what you have said, I suppose I must keep the ring and guard it, at least for the present, whatever it may do to me. Whatever it may do, it will be slow, slow to evil, if you keep it with that purpose, said Gandalf. I hope so, said Frodo. But I hope that you may find some other better keeper soon. But in the meanwhile... It seems that I am in danger, a danger to all that live near me. I cannot keep the ring and stay here. I ought to leave Bag End, leave the Shire, leave everything and go away, he sighed. I should like to save the Shire if I could, though there has been times when I thought the inhabitants too stupid and dull for words and have felt that an earthquake or an invasion of dragons might be good for them. But I don't feel like that now. I feel that as long as the Shire lies behind, safe and comfortable, I shall find wandering more bearable. I shall know that somewhere there is a firm foothold, even if my feet cannot stay there again. Of course, I have sometimes thought of going away, but I imagine that as a kind of holiday, a series of adventures like Bilbo's, or better, ending in peace. But this would mean exile, a flight from danger to danger, drawing it after me. And I suppose I must go alone, if I am to do that and save the Shire. But I feel very small and very uprooted and, well, desperate. The enemy is so strong and terrible. He did not tell Gandalf, but as he was speaking, a great desire to follow Bilbo flamed up in his heart to follow Bilbo, and even perhaps to find him. It was so strong that it overcame his fear. 
He could almost have run out of there and then down the road without his hat, as Bilbo had done on a similar morning long ago. My dear Frodo, exclaimed Gandalf, hobbits really are amazing creatures, as I have said before. You can learn all there is to know about their ways in a month, and yet after a hundred years they can still surprise you at a pinch. I hardly expected to get such an answer, not even from you. But Bilbo made no mistake in choosing his heir, though he little thought how important it would prove. I am afraid you are right. The ring will not be able to stay hidden in the Shire much longer, and for your own sake, as well as for others, you will have to go and leave the name of Baggins behind you. That name will not be safe to have outside the Shire or in the wild. I will give you a travelling name now. When you go, go as Mr. Underhill. But I don't think you need go alone, not if you know of anyone you can trust and who would be willing to go by your side and that you would be willing to take into unknown perils. But if you look for a companion, be careful in choosing, and be careful what you say, even to your closest friends. The enemy has many spies and many ways of hearing. Suddenly he stopped as if listening. Frodo became aware that all was very quiet, inside and outside. Gandalf crept to one side of the window, and then with a dart he sprang to the seal and thrust a long arm out and downwards. There was a squawk, and up came Sam Ganji's curly head, hauled by one ear. Well, well, bless my beard, said Gandalf. Sam Ganji, is it? Now, what have you been doing? Lord bless you, Mr Gandalf, sir, said Sam. Nothing, leastways I was trimming the grass border under the window, if you follow me. He picked up his shears and exhibited them as evidence. I don't, said Gandalf grimly. It is some time since I last heard the sound of your shears. How long have you been eavesdropping? Eavesdropping, sir? I don't follow you, begging your pardon. There ain't no eaves at Bag End, and that's a fact. Don't be a fool. What have you heard, and why did you listen? Gandalf's eyes flashed, and his brows struck out like bristles. Mr Frodo, sir, cried Sam, quaking. Don't let him hurt me, sir. Don't let him turn me into anything unnatural. My old dad would take on so. I meant no harm on my honour, sir. He won't hurt you, said Frodo, hardly able to keep from laughing, although he was himself startled and rather puzzled. He knows as well as I do that you mean no harm, but just you up and answer his question straight away. Well, sir, said Sam, differing a little, I heard a deal that I didn't rightly understand about an enemy and rings and Mr Bilbo, sir, and dragons and a fiery mountain and elves, sir. I listened because I couldn't help myself, if you know what I mean. Lord bless me, sir. But I do love tales of that sort, and I believe them too, whatever Ted may say. Elves, sir, I would dearly love to see them. Couldn't you take me to see the elves, sir, when you go? Suddenly, Gandalf laughed. Come inside, he shouted. 
and putting out both his arms he lifted the astonished Sam, shears, grass clippings and all right through the window and stood him on the floor. Take you to see elves, eh? he said, eyeing Sam closely, but with a smile flickering on his face. So you heard that Mr Frodo is going away? I did, sir, and that's why I choked, which you heard seemingly. I tried not to, sir, but it just burst out of me. I was so upset. It can't be helped, Sam, said Frodo sadly. He had suddenly realised that flying from the Shire would mean more painful partings than merely saying farewell to the comforts of Bag End. I shall have to go, but... And here he looked hard at Sam. If you really care about me... You will keep that dead secret, see? If you don't, if you even breathe a word of what you've heard here, then I hope Gandalf will turn you into a spotted toad and fill the garden full of grass snakes. Sam fell on his knees, trembling. Get up, Sam, said Gandalf. I have thought of something better than that, something to shut your mouth and punish you properly for listening. You shall go away with Mr Frodo. Me, sir, cried Sam, springing up like a dog invited for a walk. Me go and see elves and all. Hooray! he shouted, and then burst into tears. The Fellowship of the Ring by J. R. R. Tolkien Book One Chapter Three Three is Company you ought to go quietly, and you ought to go soon, said Gandalf. Two or three weeks had passed, and still Frodo made no sign of getting ready to go. I know, but it is difficult to do both, he objected. If I just vanish like Bilbo, the tale will be all over the Shire in no time. Of course you mustn't vanish, said Gandalf. That wouldn't do at all. I said soon, not instantly. If you can think of any way of slipping out of the Shire without its being generally known, it will be worth a little delay. But you must not delay too long. What about the autumn, on or after our birthday? I think I could probably make some arrangements by then. To tell the truth, he was very reluctant to start. Now that it had come to the point, Bag End seemed a more desirable residence than it had for years, and he wanted to savour as much as he could of his last summer in the Shire. When autumn came, he knew that part at least of his heart would think more kindly of journeying, as it always did at that season. He had indeed privately made up his mind to leave on his fiftieth birthday, Bilbo's one hundred and twenty-eighth. It seemed somehow the proper day on which to set out and follow him. Following Bilbo was uppermost in his mind, and the one thing that made the thought of leaving bearable. He thought as little as possible about the ring, and where it might lead him in the end. But he did not tell all his thoughts to Gandalf. What the wizard guessed was always difficult to tell. He looked at Frodo and smiled. Very well, he said. I think that will do. But it must not be any later. I am getting very anxious. In the meanwhile, do.
do take care and don't let out any hint of where you are going. And see that Sam Ganji does not talk. If he does, I really shall turn him into a toad. As for where I am going, said Frodo, it would be difficult to give that away, for I have no clear idea myself yet. Don't be absurd, said Gandalf. I am not warning you against leaving an address at the post office. But you are leaving the Shire, and that should not be known until you are far away, and you must go, or at least set out, either north, south, west or east, and the direction should certainly not be known. I have been so taken up with thoughts of leaving Bag End, and of saying farewell, that I have never even considered the direction, said Frodo. For where am I to go, and by what shall I steer? What is to be my quest? Bilbo went to find a treasure, there and back again. But I go to lose one, and not return, as far as I can see. But you cannot see very far, said Gandalf. Neither can I. It may be your task to find the cracks of doom, but that quest may be for others. I do not know. At any rate, you are not ready for that long road yet. No, indeed, said Frodo. But in the meantime, what course am I to take? <laughs> Towards danger, but not too rashly, nor too straight, answered the wizard. If you want my advice, make for Rivendale. That journey should not prove too perilous though the road is less easy than it was, and it will grow worse as the year fails. Rivendale, said Frodo. Very good. I will go east, and I will make for Rivendale. I will take Sam to visit the elves. He will be delighted. He spoke lightly, but his heart was moved suddenly, with a desire to see the house of Elrond, half-elven, and breathe the air of that deep valley where many of the fair folk still dwelt in peace. One summer's evening, an astonishing piece of news reached the ivy bush and green dragon. Giants and other poor tents on the borders of the Shire were forgotten for more important matters. Mr Frodo was selling Bag End. Indeed, had already sold it to the Sackfield Bagginses. For a nice bet too, said some. At a bargain price, said others. And that's more likely when Mistress Lobelia's the buyer. Ofo had died some years before at the ripe but disappointed age of a hundred and two. Just why Mr Frodo was selling his beautiful hall was even more debatable than the price. A few held the theory, supported by the nods and hints of Mr Baggins himself, that Frodo's money was running out. He was going to leave Hobbiton to live in a quiet way on the proceeds of the sale down in Buckland, among his Brandybuck relations. As far from the Sackville Bagginses as may be, some added. But so firmly fixed had the notion of the immeasurable wealth of the Bagginses of Bag End become that most found this hard to believe, harder than any other reason or unreason that their fancy could suggest. To most, it suggested a dark and yet unrevealed plot by Gandalf. Though he kept himself very quiet and did not go about by day, 
it was well known that he was hiding up there in the bag end. But however a removal might fit in with the designs of his wizardry, there was no doubt about the fact Frodo Baggins was going back to Buckland. Yes, I shall be moving this autumn, he said. Mary Brandybuck is looking out for a nice little hall for me, or perhaps a small house. As a matter of fact, with Mary's help, he had already chosen and bought a little house at Crick Hollow in the country beyond Buckleberry. To all but Sam, he pretended he was going to settle down there permanently. The decision to set out eastwards had suggested the idea to him, for Buckland was on the eastern borders of the Shire, and as he had lived there in childhood, his going back would at least seem credible. Gandalf stayed in the Shire for over two months. Then one evening, at the end of June, soon after Frodo's plan had been finally arranged, he suddenly announced that he was going off again next morning. Only for a short while, I hope, he said. But I am going down beyond the southern borders to get some news, if I can. I have been idle longer than I should. He spoke lightly but it seemed to Frodo that he looked rather worried. Has anything happened? he asked. Well, no, but I have heard something that has made me anxious and needs looking into. If I think it necessary after all for you to get off at once, I shall come back immediately, or at least send word. In the meanwhile, stick to your plan, but be more careful than ever, especially of the ring. Let me impress on you once more. Don't use it. He went off at dawn. I may be back any day, he said. At the very least I shall come back for the farewell party. I think after all you may need my company on the road. At first Frodo was a good deal disturbed and wondered often what Gandalf could have heard. But his uneasiness wore off and in the fine weather he forgot his troubles for a while. The Shire had seldom seen so fair a summer, or so rich an autumn. The trees were laden with apples, honey was dripping in the cones, and the corn was tall and full. Autumn was well under way before Frodo began to worry about Gandalf again. September was passing, and there was still no news of him. The birthday and the removal drew nearer, and still he did not come or send word. Bagend began to be busy. Some of Frodo's friends came to stay and help him with the packing. There was Fredegar Borger and Fulco Boffin, and of course his special friends Pippin Took and Mary Brandybuck. Between them, they turned the whole place upside down. On September 20th, Two covered carts went off laden to Buckland, conveying the furniture and goods that Frodo had not sold to his new home, by way of the Brandywine Bridge. The next day, Frodo became really anxious and kept a constant lookout for Gandalf. Thursday, his birthday morning, dawned as fair and clear as it had long ago for Bilbo's great party. Still, Gandalf did not appear. In the evening, Frodo gave his farewell feast. It was quite small, just a dinner for himself and his four helpers, but he was troubled and felt in no mood for it. 
the thought that he would so soon have to part with his young friends weighed on his heart. He wondered how he would break it to them. The four younger hobbits were, however, in high spirits, and the party soon became very cheerful in spite of Gandalf's absence. The dining room was bare except for a table and chairs, but the food was good and there was good wine. Frodo's wine had not been included in the sale to the Sackville Bagginses. Whatever happens to the rest of my stuff when the SBs get their claws on it, at any rate, I have found a good home for this," said Frodo as he drained his glass. It was the last drop of all Winyards. When they had sung many songs and talked of many things they had done together, they toasted Bilbo's birthday and they drank his health and Frodo's together, according to Frodo's custom. Then they went out for a sniff of air and glimpse of the stars. And then they went to bed. Frodo's party was over, and Gandalf had not come. The next morning they were busy packing another cart with the remainder of the luggage. Merry took charge of this and drove off with Fatty, that is Fredegar Balger. Someone must get out there and warm the house before you arrive," said Merry. "Well, see you later." The day after tomorrow, if you don't go to sleep on the way. Fulco went home after lunch, but Pippin remained behind. Frodo was restless and anxious, listening in vain for a sound of Gandalf. He decided to wait until nightfall. After that, if Gandalf wanted him urgently, he would go to Crick Hollow and might even get there first, for Frodo was going on foot. His plan. For pleasure and a last look at the Shire, as much as any other reason, was to walk from Hobbiton to Buckleberry Ferry, taking it fairly easy. I shall get myself a bit into training too," he said, looking at himself in a dusty mirror in the half-empty hall. He had not done any strenuous walking for a long time, and the reflection looked rather flabby. He thought. After lunch, the Sackville Bagginses, Lobelia, and her sandy-haired son, Lofo, turned up, much to Frodo's annoyance. Ah, at last," said Lobelia as she stepped inside. It was not polite, nor strictly true, for the sale of Bag End did not take effect until midnight. But Lobelia can perhaps be forgiven. She had been obliged to wait about seventy-seven years longer for Bag End than she once hoped, and she was now a hundred years old. Anyway, she had come to see that nothing she had paid for had been carried off, and she wanted the keys. It took a long while to satisfy her, as she had brought a complete inventory with her and went right through it. In the end, she departed with Lofo and the spare key and the promise. That the other key would be left at the Gamgees in Bagshot Row, she snorted and showed plainly that she thought the Gamgees capable of plundering the hall during the night. Frodo did not offer her any tea. He took his own tea with Pippin and Sam Gamgee in the kitchen. It had been officially announced that Sam was coming to Buckland to do for Mister Frodo and look after his bit of garden. An arrangement that was approved by the gaffer, though it did not console him for the prospect of having Lobelia as a neighbour.
our last meal at Bag End, said Frodo, pushing back his chair. They left the washing up for Lobelia. Pippin and Sam strapped up their three packs and piled them in the porch. Pippin went out for a last stroll in the garden. Sam disappeared. The sun went down. Bag End seemed sad and gloomy and dishevelled. Frodo wandered round the familiar rooms and saw the light of the sunset fade on the walls and the shadows creep out of the corners. It grew slowly dark indoors. He went out and walked down to the gate at the bottom of the path and then on a short way down the hill road. He half expected to see Gandalf come striding up through the dusk. The sky was clear and the stars were glowing bright. It's going to be a fine night, he said aloud. That's good for a beginning. I feel like walking. I can't bear any more hanging about. I'm going to start and Gandalf must follow me. He turned to go back and then stopped, for he heard voices just around the corner by the end of Bagshock Row. One voice was certainly the old gaffer's. The other was strange and somehow unpleasant. He could not make out what it said, but he heard the gaffer's answers, which were rather shrill. The old man seemed put out. No, Mr Baggins has gone away. Went this morning, and my Sam went with him. Anyway, all his stuff went. Yes, sold out and gone, I tell ye. Why? Why is none of my business or yours? Where to? That ain't no secret. He's moved to Buckleberry, or some such place, way down yonder. Yes, it is, a tidy way. I've never been so far myself. They're queer folk in Buckland. No, I can't give no message. Good night to you. Footsteps went away down the hill. Frodo wondered vaguely why the fact that they did not come on up the hill seemed a great relief. I am sick of questions and curiosity about my doings, I suppose, he thought. What an inquisitive lot they all are. He had half a mind to go and ask the gaffer who the inquirer was, but he thought better, or worse, of it, and turned and walked quickly back to Bag End. Pippin was sitting on his pack in the porch. Sam was not there. Frodo stepped inside the dark door. Sam, he called. Sam, time. Come in, sir, came the answer from far within, followed soon by Sam himself wiping his mouth. He had been saying farewell to the beer barrel in the cellar. All aboard, Sam, said Frodo. Yes, sir. I'll last for a bit now, sir. Frodo shut unlocked the round door and gave the key to Sam. Run down with this to your home, Sam, he said. Then cut along the row and meet us as quick as you can at the gate in the lane beyond the meadows. We are not going through the village tonight. Too many ears pricking and eyes prying. Sam ran off at full speed. Well, now we're off at last. They shouldered their packs and took up their sticks and walked round the corner to the west side of Bag End. Goodbye, said Frodo, looking at the dark, blank windows. He waved his hand, then turned, and, following Bilbo, if he had known it, hurried after Peregrine down the garden path. 
They jumped over a low place in the hedge at the bottom and took to the fields, passing into the darkness like a rustle in the grasses. At the bottom of the hill on its western side, they came to the gate opening onto a narrow lane. There they halted and adjusted the straps of their packs. Presently, Sam appeared, trotting quickly and breathing hard. His heavy pack was hoisted high on his shoulders, and he had put on his head a tall, shapeless felt bag, which he called a hat. In the gloom, he looked very much like a dwarf. I am sure you have given me all the heaviest stuff, said Frodo. I pity snails and all that carry their homes on their backs. I could take a lot more yet, sir. My packet is quite light, said Sam stoutly and untruthfully. No, you don't, Sam, said Pippin. It's good for him. He's got nothing except what he ordered us to pack. He's been slack lately, and he'll feel the weight less when he's walked off some of his own. Be kind to a poor old hobbit, laughed Frodo. I shall be as thin as a willow wand, I'm sure, before I get to Buckland. But I was talking nonsense. I suspect you have taken more than your share, Sam, and I shall look into it at our next packing. He picked up his stick again. Well, we all like walking in the dark, he said. So let's put some miles behind us before bed. For a short way, they followed the lane westwards, then leaving it, they turned left and took quietly to the fields again. They went in single fire along hedgerows and the borders of coppices, and the night fell dark about them. In their dark cloaks, they were as invisible as if they all had magic rings. Since they were all hobbits and were trying to be silent, they made no noise that even hobbits would hear. Even the wild things in the fields and woods hardly noticed their passing. After some time, they crossed the water west of Hobbiton by a narrow plank bridge. The stream was there, no more than a winding black ribbon bordered with leaning alder trees. A mile or two further south, they hastily crossed the great road from the Brandywine Bridge. They were now in the Tookland and bending south-eastwards, they made for the Green Hill country. As they began to climb its first slopes, they looked back and saw the lamps in Hobbiton, far off twinkling in the gentle valley of the water. Soon it disappeared in the folds of the darkened land, and was followed by Bywater beside its grey pool. When the light of the last farm was far behind, peeping among the trees, Frodo turned and waved a hand in farewell. I wonder if I shall ever look down into that valley again, he said quietly. When they had walked for about three hours, they rested. The night was clear, cool and starry, but smoke-like wisps of mist were creeping up the hillsides from the streams and deep meadows. Thin-clad birches, swaying in the light wind above their heads, made a black net against the pale sky. They ate a very fugal supper, for hobbits, and then went on again. Soon they struck a narrow road that went rolling up and down, fading grey into the blackness ahead, the road of Woodhall and Stock and the Buckleberry Ferry. It climbed away from the main road in the water valley, 
and wound over the skirts of the green hills towards Woody End, a wild corner of the East Farthing. After a while, they plunged into a deeply cloven track between tall trees that rustled their dry leaves in the night. It was very dark. At first they talked, or hummed a tune softly together, being now far away from inquisitive ears. Then they marched on in silence, and Pippin began to lag behind. At last they began to climb a steep slope. He stopped and yawned. Oh, I'm so sleepy, he said. But soon I shall fall down on the road. Are you going to sleep on your legs? It is nearly midnight. I thought you liked walking in the dark, said Frodo. But there is no great hurry. Mary expects us sometime the day after tomorrow. But that leaves us nearly two days more. We'll halt at the first likely spot. The wind's in the west, said Sam. If we get to the other side of this hill, we shall find a spot that is sheltered and snug enough, sir. There is a dry firwood just ahead, if I remember rightly. Sam knew the land well within twenty miles of Hobbiton, but that was the limit of his geography. Just over the top of the hill, they came into a patch of firwood. Leaving the road, they went into a deep resin-scented darkness of the trees and gathered dead sticks and cones to make a fire. Soon they had a merry crackle of flame at the foot of a large fir tree and they sat round it for a while until they began to nod. Then, each in an angle of the great tree's roots, they curled up in their cloaks and blankets and were soon fast asleep. They set no watch, even Frodo feared no danger yet, for they were still in the heart of the Shire. A few creatures came and looked at them when the fire had died away. A fox passing through the wood on business of his own stopped several minutes and sniffed. Hobbits, he thought. Well, what next? I have heard of strange doings in this land, but I have seldom heard of a hobbit sleeping out of doors under a tree. Three of them. There's something mighty queer behind this. He was quite right, but he never found out any more about it. The morning came pale and clammy. Frodo woke up first and found that a tree root had made a hole in his back and that his neck was stiff. Walking for pleasure, why didn't I drive? He thought, as he usually did at the beginning of an expedition. And all my beautiful feather beds are sold to the Sackville Bagginses. These tree roots would do them good. He stretched. Wake up, hobbits, he cried. It's a beautiful morning. Oh, what's beautiful about it? Said Pippin, peering over the edge of his blanket with one eye. Sam, get breakfast ready for half past nine. Have you got the bath water hot? Sam jumped up, looked rather bleary. No, sir, I haven't, sir, he said. Frodo stripped the blankets from Pippin and rolled him over, and then walked off to the edge of the wood. Away eastward, the sun was rising red out of the mists that lay thick on the world. Touched with gold and red, the autumn trees seemed to be sailing, rootless in a shadowy sea. A little below him, to the left, the road ran down steeply into a hollow, 
and disappeared. When he returned, Sam and Pippin had got a good fire going. Water! shouted Pippin. Where's the water? I don't keep water in my pockets, said Frodo. We thought you had gone to find some, said Pippin, busy setting out the food and cups. You had better go now. You can come too, said Frodo, and bring all the water bottles. There was a stream at the foot of the hill. They filled their bottles and the small camping kettle at a little fall where the water fell a few feet over an outcrop of grey stone. It was icy cold, and they spluttered and puffed as they bathed their faces and hands. When their breakfast was over and their packs all trussed up again, it was after ten o'clock, and the day was beginning to turn fine and hot. They went down the slope and across the stream where it dived under the road, and up the next slope, and up and down another shoulder of the hills, and by that time their cloaks, blankets, water, food and other gear already seemed a heavy burden. The day's march promised to be warm and tiring work. After some miles, however, the road ceased to roll up and down. It climbed to the top of a steep bank in a weary zigzagging sort of way, and then prepared to go down for the last time. In front of them they saw the lower lands dotted with small clumps of trees that melted away in the distance to a brown woodland haze. They were looking across the woody end towards the Brandywine River. The road wound away before them like a piece of string. Oh, this road goes on forever, said Pippin. But I can't without a rest. It's high time for lunch. He sat down on the bank at the side of the road and looked away east into the haze, beyond which lay the river and the end of the shire in which he had spent all his life. Sam stood by him. His eyes were wide open, for he was looking across the lands he had never seen to a new horizon. Do elves live in those woods? he asked. Not that I've ever heard, said Pippin. Frodo was silent. He too was gazing eastward along the road as if he had never seen it before. Suddenly he spoke, aloud, but as if to himself, slowly. The road goes ever on and on, down from the door where it began. Now far ahead the road has gone, and I must follow, if I can, pursuing with weary feet until it joins some larger way, where many paths and errands meet, and whither then I cannot say. That sounds like a bit of old Bilbo's rhyming, said Pippin, or it's one of your imitations. It does not sound altogether encouraging. I don't know, said Frodo. It came to me then, as if I was making it up. But I may have heard it long ago. Certainly it reminds me very much of Bilbo in the last years, before he went away. He often used to say there was only one road, that it was like a great river, its springs were at every doorstep, and every path was its tributary. It's a dangerous business, Frodo, going out of your door, he used to say. You step into the road, and if you don't keep your feet, there is no knowing where you might be swept off to. Do you realise that this is the very path that goes through Mirkwood, and if you let it, 
It might take you to the lonely mountain, or even further, and to worse places. He used to say that on the path outside the front door at Bag End, especially after he had been out for a long walk. Well, this road won't sweep me anywhere for an hour at least, said Pippin, unslinging his pack. The others followed his example, putting their packs against the bank and their legs out into the road. After a rest, they had a good lunch, and then more rest. The sun was beginning to get low, and the light of the afternoon was on the land as they went down the hill. So far they had not met a soul on the road. This way was not much used, being hardly fit for carts, and there was little traffic to the woody end. They had been jogging along again for an hour or more when Sam stopped a moment as if listening. They were now on a level ground, and the road, after much winding, lay straight ahead through grassland sprinkled with tall trees, outliners of the approaching woods. I can hear a pony or a horse coming along the road behind, said Sam. They looked back, but the turn of the road prevented them from seeing far. I wonder if that is Gandalf coming after us, said Frodo. But even as he said it, he had a feeling it was not so, and a sudden desire to hide from the view of the rider came over him. It may not matter much, he said apologetically, but I would rather not be seen on the road by anyone. I am sick of my doings being noticed and discussed, and if it is Gandalf, he added as an afterthought, we can give him a little surprise and pay him out for being so late. Let's get out of sight. The other two ran quickly to the left and down into a little hollow not far from the road. There they lay flat. Frodo hesitated for a second. Curiosity or some other feeling was struggling with his desire to hide. The sound of hooves drew nearer. Just in time he threw himself down in a patch of long grass behind a tree that overshadowed the road. Then he lifted his head and peered cautiously above one of the great roots. Round the corner came a black horse. No hobbit pony, but a full-sized horse. And on it sat a large man, who seemed to crouch in the saddle, wrapped in a great black cloak and hood, so that only his boots in the high stirrups show below. His face was shadowed and invisible. When he reached the tree and was level with Frodo, the horse stopped. The riding figure sat quite still with its head bowed as if listening. From inside the hood came a noise as of someone sniffing to catch an elusive scent. The head turned from side to side of the road. A sudden unreasoning fear of discovery laid hold of Frodo and he thought of his ring. He hardly dared to breathe, and yet the desire to get it out of his pocket became so strong that he began slowly to move his hand. He felt that he had only to slip it on, and then he would be safe. The advice of Gandalf seemed absurd. Bilbo had used the ring, and I am still in the Shire, he thought, as his hand touched the chain on which it hung. At that moment, the rider sat up and shook the reins. The horse stepped forward, walking slowly at first, and then breaking into a trot. 
Frodo crawled to the edge of the road and watched the rider until he dwindled into the distance. He could not be quite sure, but it seemed to him that suddenly, before it passed out of sight, the horse turned aside and went into the trees on the right. Well, I call that very queer and indeed disturbing, said Frodo to himself as he walked towards his companions. Pippin and Sam had remained flat in the grass and had seen nothing, so Frodo described the rider and his strange behaviour. I can't say why, but I felt certain he was looking or smelling for me, and also I felt certain that I did not want him to discover me. I've never seen or felt anything like it in the Shire before. But what has one of the big people got to do with us? said Pippin. And what was he doing in this part of the world? There are some men about, said Frodo, down in South Farvin. They have had trouble with big people, I believe. But I have never heard of anything like this rider. I wonder where he comes from. Begging your pardon, Sam put in suddenly. I know where he comes from. It's from Hobbiton that this here black rider comes, unless there's been more than one. And I know where he's going too. What do you mean? said Frodo sharply, looking at him in astonishment. Why didn't you speak up before? I have only just remembered, sir. It was like this. When I got back to our hall yesterday evening with the key, my dad says to me, Hello, Sam, he says. I thought you were away with Mr. Frodo this morning. There's been a strange customer asking for Mr. Baggins at Bag End, and he's only just gone. I've sent him on to Buckleberry. Not that I like the sound of him. He seemed mighty put out when I told him Mr. Baggins had left his old home for good. Hissed at me, he did. It gave me quite a shudder. What sort of fellow was he, says I to the gaffer. I don't know, says he, but he wasn't a hobbit. He was tall and black-like, and he stooped over me. I reckoned it was one of the big folk from foreign parts. He spoke funny. I couldn't stay to hear more, sir, since you were waiting, and I didn't give much heed to it myself. The gaffer is getting old, and more than a bit blind, and it must have been near dark when this fellow come up the hill and found him taking the air at the end of our row. I hope he hasn't done no harm, sir, nor me. The gaffer can't be blamed anyway, said Frodo. As a matter of fact, I heard him talking to a stranger who seemed to be inquiring for me, and I nearly went and asked him who it was. I wish I had, or you had told me about it before. I might have been more careful on the road. Still, there may be no connection between this rider and the gaffer's stranger, said Pippin. We left Hobbiton secretly enough, and I don't see how he could have followed us. What about the smelling, sir? said Sam. And the gaffer said he was a black chap. Oh, I wish I had waited for Gandalf, Frodo muttered. But perhaps it would only have made matters worse. Then you know or guess something about this rider, said Pippin, who had caught the muttered words. I don't know. And I would rather not guess, said Frodo. All right, cousin Frodo, you can keep your secret for the present if you want to be mysterious. But in the meanwhile, what are we to do? I should like a bite and a sup, but somehow I think we had better move on from here. Your talk of sniffing riders with invisible noses has unsettled me. Yes, I think we will move on now, said Frodo. 
but not on the road, in case that rider comes back, or another follows him. We ought to do a good step more today. Buckland is still miles away. The shadow of the trees were long and thin on the grass as they started off again. They now kept a stone's throw to the left of the road and kept out of sight of it as much as they could. But this hindered them, for the grass was thick and tossicky and the ground uneven, and the trees began to draw together into thickets. The sun had got down red behind the hills at their backs, and evening was coming on before they came back to the road at the end of a long level, over which it had run straight for some miles. At that point it bent left and went down into the lowlands of the Yale, making for stock, but a lane branched right, winding through a wood of ancient oak trees on its way to Woodhall. That is the way for us, said Frodo. Not far from the road meeting, they came to a huge hulk of a tree. It was still alive and had leaves on the small branches that it had put out round the broken stumps of its long fallen limbs. But it was hollow and could be entered by a great crack on the side away from the road. The hobbits crept inside and sat upon the floor of old leaves and decayed wood. They rested and had a light meal, talking quietly and listening from time to time. Twilight was about them when they crept back to the lane. The west wind was sighing in the branches. Leaves were whispering. Soon the road began to fall gently but steadily into the dusk. A star came out above the trees in the darkening east before them. They went abreast and in step, to keep up their spirits. After a time, as the stars grew thicker and brighter, the feeling of disquiet left them, and they no longer listened for the sound of hooves. They began to hum softly, as hobbits have a way of doing as they walk along, especially when they are drawing near to home at night. With most hobbits, it is a supper song or a bed song, but these hobbits hummed a walking song, though not, of course, without any mention of supper and bed. Bilbo Baggins had made the words to the tune that was as old as the hills and taught it to Frodo as they walked in the lanes of the water valley and talked about adventure. Upon the hearth the fire is red, beneath the roof there is a bed, but not yet weary are our feet, still round the corner we may meet, a sudden tree or standing stone, that none have seen but we alone, tree and flower and leaf and grass, let them pass, let them pass, hill and water under the sky, let them by, let them by, still round the corner there may wait, a new road or a secret gate, and though we pass them by today, tomorrow we may come this way and take the hidden paths that run towards the moon or to the sun, apple-thorn and nut and slow. Let them go, let them go, sand and stone and pool and dell, fare you well, fare you well. Home is behind, the world ahead, and there are many paths to tread, through shadows to the edge of night, until the stars are all alight, then world behind and home ahead, we'll wander back to home and bed, 
Mist and twilight, cloud and shade, away shall fade, away shall fade. Fire and lamp and meat and bread, and then to bed, and then to bed. The song ended, and now to bed, and now to bed, sang Pippin in a high voice. Hush, said, Fro said Frodo. I think I hear hooves again. They stopped suddenly and stood as silent as tree shadows, listening. There was a sound of hooves in the lane, some way behind, but coming slow and clear down the wind. Quickly and quietly they slipped off the path and ran into the deeper shade under the oak trees. Don't let us go too far, said Frodo. I don't want to be seen, but I want to see if it is another black rider. Very well, said Pippin, but don't forget the sniffing. The hooves drew nearer. They had no time to find any hiding place better than the general darkness under the trees. Sam and Pippin crouched behind a large tree ball, while Frodo crept back a few yards beyond the lane. It showed grey and pale, a line of fading light through the wood. Above, the stars were thick in the dim sky, but there was no moon. The sound of hooves stopped. As Frodo watched, he saw something dark cross between the lighter space between two trees and then halt. It looked like the black shade of a horse led by a smaller black shadow. The black shadow stood close to the point where they had left the path, and it swayed from side to side. Frodo thought he heard the sound of snuffling. The shadow bent to the ground, and then began to crawl towards him. Once more, the desire to slip on the ring came over Frodo, but this time it was stronger than before, so strong that, almost before he realised what he was doing, his hand was groping in his pocket. But at that moment there came a sound like mingled song and laughter. Clear voices rose and fell into the starlit air. The black shadow straightened up and retreated. It climbed onto the shadowy horse and seemed to vanish across the lane into the darkness on the other side. Frodo breathed again. Elves! exclaimed Sam in a hoarse whisper. Elves, sir! He would have burst out of the trees and dashed off towards the voices if they had not pulled him back. Yes, it is elves, said Frodo. One can meet them sometimes in the woody end. They don't live in the Shire but they wander into it in the spring and autumn, out of their own lands, away beyond the Tower Hills. I am thankful that they do. You did not see, but the Black Rider stopped just here and was actually crawling towards us when the song began. As soon as he heard the voices, he slipped away. What about the elves? said Sam, too excited to trouble about the rider. Can't we go and see them? Listen, they are coming this way. We have only to wait. The singing drew nearer. One clear voice rose now above the others. It was singing in the fair elven tongue, of which Frodo knew only a little, and the others knew nothing. Yet the sound blending with the melody seemed to shape itself in their thought, into words which they only partly understood. This was the song as Frodo heard it. Snow White, Snow White, O lady clear, O queen beyond the western seas, O light to us that wander here, 
amid the world of woven trees. Gilfoniel, O Elbreth, clear as thy eyes and bright thy breath, snow white, snow white, we sing to thee in a far land beyond the sea. O stars that in the sunless year with shining hand by her were sown in windy fields now bright and clear we see your silver blossom blown. O Ilbreth Githaniel, we still remember we who dwell in this far land beneath the trees, thy starlight on the western seas. The song ended. These are high elves. They spoke the name of Ilbreth, said Frodo in amazement. Few of that fairest folk are ever seen in the Shire. Not many now remain in Middle-earth, east of the Great Sea. This is indeed a strange chance. The hobbits sat in shadow by the wayside. Before long the elves came down the lane towards the valley. They passed slowly, and the hobbits could see the starlight glimmering on their hair and in their eyes. They bore no lights, yet as they walked, a shimmer like the light of the moon above the rim of the hills before it rises seemed to fall about their feet. They were now silent, and as the last elf passed, he turned and looked towards the hobbits and laughed. Hail, Frodo, he cried. You are abroad late, or are you perhaps lost? Then he called aloud to the others, and all the company stopped and gathered round. This is indeed wonderful, they said. Three hobbits in a wood at night. We have not seen such a thing since Bilbo went away. What is the meaning of it? The meaning of it, fair people, said Frodo, is simply that we seem to be going the same way as you are. I like walking under the stars, but I would welcome your company. But we have no need of other company, and hobbits are so dull, they laughed. And how do you know that we are going the same way as you, for you do not know whither we are going? And how do you know my name? asked Frodo in return. We know many things, they said. We have seen you often before with Bilbo, though you may not have seen us. Who are you, and who is your lord? asked Frodo. I am Gildor, answered their leader, the elf who had first hailed them. Gildor Ingorian, of the house of Finrod. We are exiles, and most of our kindred have long ago departed, and we too are now only tarrying here a while, ere we return over the great sea but some of our kinsfolk dwell still in peace in Rivendell. Come now, Frodo, tell us what you are doing, for we see that there is some shadow of fear upon you. Oh, wise people, interrupted Pippin eagerly, tell us about the Black Riders. Black Riders, they said in low voices. Why do you ask about Black Riders. Riders. 
because two black riders have overtaken us today, or one has done so twice, said Pippin. Only a little while ago he slipped away as you drew near. The elves did not answer at once, but spoke together softly in their own tongue. At length, Gildor turned to the hobbits. We will not speak of this here, he said. We think you had best come now with us. It is not our custom, but for this time we will take you on our road, and you shall lodge with us to-night, if you will. Oh, fair folk, this is good fortune beyond my hope, said Pippin. Sam was speechless. I thank you indeed, Gildor and Glorian, said Frodo, bowing. Elen sila lumen omentivil. The stars shine on the hour of our meeting, he added in high elven speech. Be careful, friends, cried Gildor, laughing. Speak no secrets. Here is a scholar in the ancient tongue. Bilbo was a good master, elf friend, he said, bowing to Frodo. Come now with your friends and join our company. You had best walk in the middle so that you may not stray. You may be wary before we halt. Why, where are you going? asked Frodo. For tonight we go to the woods on the hills above Woodhall. It is some miles, but you shall have rest at the end of it, and it will shorten your journey tomorrow. Now they marched on again in silence, and passed like shadows and faint lights, for elves, even more than hobbits, could walk when they wished without sound or footfall. Pippin soon began to feel sleepy and staggered once or twice, but each time a tall elf at his side put his arm and saved him from the fall. Sam walked along at Frodo's side as if in a dream, with an expression on his face half of fear and half of astonished joy. The woods on either side became denser and the trees were now younger and thicker, and as the lane went lower, running down into the fold of the hills, there were many deep breaks of hazel on the rising slopes at either hand. At last the elves turned aside from the path. A green ride lay almost unseen through the thickets on the right, and this they followed as it wound away back up the wooded slopes onto the top of the shoulder of the hills that stood out into the lower land of the river valley. Suddenly, they came out of the shadow of the trees, and before them lay a wide space of grass, grey under the night. On three sides the woods pressed upon it, but eastward the ground fell steeply, and the tops of the dark trees, growing at the bottom of the slope, were below their feet. Beyond, the lowlands lay dim and flat under the stars. Nearer at hand, a few lights twinkled in the village of Woodhall. The elves sat on the grass and spoke together in soft voices. They seemed to take no further notice of the hobbits. Frodo and his companions wrapped themselves in cloaks and blankets, and drowsiness stole over them. The night grew on, and the lights in the valley went out. Pippin fell asleep, pillowed on a green hillock. Away high in the east swung Ramirith, the netted stars, and slowly above the mist's red borgalil rose. 
Then by some shift of airs all the mist was drawn away like a veil, and there leaned up, as he climbed over the rim of the world, the swordsman of the sky. Mean Valgor, with his shining belt, the elves all burst into song. Suddenly under the trees a fire sprang up with a red light. Come, the elves called to the hobbits, come now is the time for speech and merriment. Pippin sat up and rubbed his eyes. He shivered. There is fire in the hall and food for hungry guests, said an elf standing before him. At the south end of the greensward there was an opening. There the green floor ran into the wood and formed a wide space like a hole, roofed by the boughs of the trees. Their great trunks rang like pillars down each side. In the middle there was a wood fire blazing, and upon the tree pillars torches with lights of gold and silver were burning steadily. The elves sat around the fire upon the grass or upon the sawn rings of old trunks. Some went to and fro bearing cups and pouring drinks, Others brought food on heaped plates and dishes. This is poor fare, they said to the hobbits, for we are lodging in the greenwood far from our halls. If ever you are our guests at home, we will treat you better. It seems to me good enough for a birthday party, said Frodo. Pippin afterwards recalled little of either food or drink, for his mind was filled with the light upon the elf faces and the sound of voices so various and so beautiful that he felt in a waking dream. But he remembered that there was bread, surpassing the savour of a fair white loaf to one who is starving, and fruits sweet as wild berries and richer than the tended fruits of gardens. He drained a cup that was filled with fragrant draught, cool as a clear fountain, golden as a summer afternoon. Sam could never describe in words, nor picture clearly to himself what he felt or thought that night, though it remained in his memory as one of the chief events of his life. The nearest he ever got was to say, Well, sir, if I could grow apples like that, I would call myself a gardener. But it was the singing that went into my heart, if you know what I mean. Frodo sat eating, drinking and talking with delight, but his mind was chiefly on the words spoken. He knew a little of elf speech and listened eagerly. Now and again he spoke to those that served him and thanked them in their own language. They smiled at him and said laughing, Here is a jewel among hobbits. After a while, Pippin fell asleep and was lifted up and borne away to a bower under the trees. There he laid upon a soft bed and slept the rest of the night away. Sam refused to leave his master. When Pippin had gone, he came and sat curled up at Frodo's feet, where at last he nodded and closed his eyes. Frodo remained long awake, talking with Gildor. They spoke of many things, old and new, and Frodo questioned Gildor much about happenings in the wide world outside the Shire. The tidings were mostly sad and ominous, of gathering darkness, the wars of men, and the flight of the elves. At last, Frodo asked the question that was nearest to his heart. Tell me, Gildor, 
Have you ever seen Bilbo since he left us? Gildos smiled. Yes, he answered. Twice. He said farewell to us on this very spot. But I saw him once again, far from here. He would say no more about Bilbo, and Frodo fell silent. You do not ask me or tell me much that concerns yourself, Frodo, said Gildor. But I already know a little, and I can read in your face and in the thought behind your questions. You are leaving the Shire, and yet you doubt that you will find what you seek, or accomplish what you intend, or that you will ever return. Is that not so? It is, said Frodo. But I thought my going was a secret known only to Gandalf and my faithful Sam. He looked down at Sam, who was snoring gently. The secret will not reach the enemy from us, said Gildor. The enemy, said Frodo. Then you know why I am leaving the Shire. I do not know for what reason the enemy is pursuing you, answered Gildor. But I perceive that he is. Strange indeed, though that seems to me, and I warn you that peril is now both before you and behind you, and upon either side. You mean the riders? I feared that they were servants of the enemy. What are the black riders? Has Gandalf told you nothing? Nothing about such creatures? Then I think it is not for me to say more, lest terror should keep you from your journey, for it seems to me that you have set out only just in time, if indeed you are in time. You must now make haste, and neither stay nor turn back, for the Shire is no longer any protection to you. I cannot imagine what information could be more terrifying than your hints and warnings, exclaimed Frodo. I knew that danger lay ahead, of course, but I did not expect to meet it in our own shire. Can't a hobbit walk from the water to the river in peace? But it is not your own shire, said Gildor. Others dwelt here before hobbits were, and others will dwell here again when hobbits are no more. The wide world is all about you. You can fence yourselves in, but you cannot forever fence it out. I know, and yet it has always seemed so safe and familiar. What can I do now? My plan was to leave the Shire secretly and make my way to Rivendell. But now my footsteps are dogged before I ever get to Buckland. I think you should still follow that plan, said Gildor. I do not think the road will prove too hard for your courage. But if you desire clearer counsel, you should ask Gandalf. I do not know the reason for your flight, and therefore I do not know by what means your pursuers will assail you. These things Gandalf must know. I suppose that you will see him before you leave the Shire? I hope so, but that is another thing that makes me anxious. I have been expecting Gandalf for many days. He was to have come to Hobbiton at the latest two nights ago. But he never appeared. Now I am wondering what can have happened. Should I wait for him? Gildor was silent for a moment. I do not like this news, he said at last. 
that Gandalf should be late does not bode well. But it is said, do not meddle in the affairs of wizards, for they are subtle and quick to anger. The choice is yours, to go or wait. And it is also said, answered Frodo, go not to the elves for counsel, for they will say both no and yes. Is it indeed? laughed Gildor. Elves seldom give unguarded advice, for advice is a dangerous gift, even from the wise to the wise, and all courses may run ill. But what would you? You have not told me all concerning yourself, and how then should I choose better than you? But if you demand advice, I will for friendship's sake give it. I think you should now go at once, without delay, and if Gandalf does not come before you set out, then I also advise this, do not go alone, take such friends as are trusty and willing. Now you should be grateful, for I do not give this counsel gladly. The elves have their own labours and their own sorrows, and they are little concerned with the ways of hobbits or of any other creatures upon earth. Our paths cross theirs seldom, by chance or purpose. In this meeting there may be more than chance, but the purpose is not clear to me, and I fear to say too much. I am deeply grateful, said Frodo, but I wish you would tell me plainly what the black riders are. If I take your advice, I may not see Gandalf for a long while, and I ought to know what is the danger that pursues me. It is not enough to know that they are servants of the enemy? asked Gildorf. Flee them, speak no words to them, they are deadly, ask no more of me. But my heart forebodes that, ere all is ended, you, Frodo, son of Drogo, will know more of these fell things than Gildor Inglorian. May Elbleref protect you. But where shall I find courage? asked Frodo. That is what I chiefly need. Courage is found in unlikely places, said Gildor. Be of good hope. Sleep now. In the morning we shall have gone, but we shall send our messages through the lands. The wandering companies shall know of your journey, and those that have power for good shall be on the watch. I name you Elf Friend, and may the stars shine upon the end of your road. Seldom have we had such delight in strangers, and it is fair to hear words of the ancient speech from lips of other wanderers in the world. Frodo felt sleep coming upon him, even as Gildor finished speaking. I will sleep now, he said, and the elf led him to a bower beside Pippin, and he threw himself upon a bed and fell at once into a dreamless slumber. The Fellowship of the Ring by J. R. R. Tolkien Book 1 
Chapter 4 A Shortcut to Mushrooms In the morning, Frodo woke refreshed. He was lying in a bower made by a living tree with branches laced and drooping to the ground. His bed was of fern and grass, deep and soft and strangely fragrant. The sun was shining through the fluttering leaves, which were still green upon the tree. He jumped up and went out. Sam was sitting on the grass near the edge of the wood. Pippin was standing studying the sky and weather. There was no sign of the elves. They have left us fruit and drink and bread, said Pippin. Come and have your breakfast. The bread tastes almost as good as it did last night. I did not want to leave you any, but Sam insisted. Frodo sat down beside Sam and began to eat. What is the plan for today? asked Pippin. To walk to Buckleberry as quickly as possible, answered Frodo, and gave his attention to the food. Do you think we shall see anything of those riders? asked Pippin cheerfully. Under the morning sun, the prospect of seeing a whole troop of them did not seem very alarming to him. Yes, probably, said Frodo, not liking the reminder. But I hope to get across the river without their seeing us. Did you find anything about them from Gildor? Not much, only hints and riddles, said Frodo evasively. Did you ask about the sniffing? I didn't discuss it said Frodo, with his mouth full. You should have. I'm sure it was very important. In that case, I'm sure Gildor would have refused to explain it, said Frodo sharply. And now leave me in peace for a bit. I don't want to answer a string of questions while I'm eating. I want to think. Good heavens, said Pippin. At breakfast? He walked away towards the edge of the green. From Frodo's mind, the bright morning treacherously bright, he thought, had not banished the fear of pursuit, and he pondered the words of Gildor. The merry voices of Pippin came to him. He was running on the green turf and singing. No, I could not, he said to himself. It is one thing to take my young friends walking over the shire with me, until we are hungry and weary, and food and bed are sweet, to take them into exile where hunger and weariness may have no cure, is quite another. Even if they are willing to come, the inheritance is mine alone. I don't think I ought even to take Sam. He looked at Sam Ganji and discovered that Sam was watching him. Well, Sam, he said, what about it? I am leaving the Shire as soon as ever I can. In fact, I have made up my mind now not even to wait a day at Crick Hollow, if it can be helped. Very good, sir. You still mean to come with me? I do. It's going to be very dangerous, Sam. It is already dangerous. Most likely, neither of us will come back. If you don't come back, sir, then I shan't. That's certain, said Sam. Don't you leave him, they said to me. Leave him, I said. I never mean to. I am going with him if he climbs to the moon. And if any of those black riders try to stop him, they'll have Sam Ganji to reckon with, I said. They laughed. Who were they? And what are you talking about? The elves, sir. We had some talk last night, and they seemed to know you were going away, so I didn't see the use of denying it. 
Wonderful folk elves, sir, wonderful. They are, said Frodo. Do you like them still, now you have had a closer view? They seem a bit above my likes and dislikes, so to speak, answered Sam slowly. It don't seem to matter what I think about them. They are quite different from what I expected, so young and old, and so gay and sad, as it were. Frodo looked at Sam rather startled, half expecting to see some outward sign of the odd change that seemed to have come over him. It did not sound like the voice of the old Sam Ganji that he thought he knew, but it looked like the old Sam Ganji sitting there, except that his face was unusually thoughtful. Do you feel any need to leave the Shire now, now that your wish to see them has already come true? he asked. Yes, sir. I don't know how to say it, but after last night I feel different. I seem to see ahead in a kind of way. I know we are going to take a very long road into darkness, but I know I can't turn back. It isn't to see elves now, nor dragons nor mountains that I want. I don't rightly know what I want, but I have something to do before the end, and it lies ahead, not in the Shire. I must see it through, sir, if you understand me. I don't altogether, but I understand that Gandalf chose me a good companion. I am content. We will go together. Frodo finished his breakfast in silence. Then, standing up, he looked over the land ahead and called to Pippin. All ready to start, he said as Pippin ran up. We must be getting off at once. We slept late and there are a good many miles to go. You slept late, you mean, said Pippin. I was up long before and we are only waiting for you to finish eating and thinking. I have finished both now, and I am going to make for Buckleberry Ferry as quickly as possible. I am not going out of the way, back to the road we left last night. I am going to cut straight across the country from here. Then you are going to fly, said Pippin. You won't cut straight on foot anywhere in this country. We can cut straighter than the road anyway, answered Frodo. The ferry is east from Woodhill, but the hard road curves away to the left. You can see a bend of it away north, over there. It goes round the north end of Marish, so as to strike the causeway from the bridge above Stock. But that is miles out of the way. We could save a quarter of the distance if we made a line for the ferry from where we stand. Shortcuts make long delays, argued Pippin. The country is rough round here, and there are bogs and all kinds of difficulties down in the Marish. I know the land in these parts, and if you are worrying about black riders, I can't see that it is any worse meeting them on the road than in a wood or a field. It is less easy to find people in the woods and fields, answered Frodo. And if you are supposed to be on the road, there is some chance that you will be looked for on the road and not off it. All right, said Pippin. I will follow you into every bog and ditch, but it is hard. I had counted on passing the golden perch at Stock before sundown, the best beer in East Farvin, or used to be. It is a long time since I tasted it. That settles it, said Frodo. Shortcuts make delays, but inns make longer ones. At all costs we must keep away from the golden perch. <laughs> we want to get to Buckleberry before dark. What do you say, Sam? I will go along with you, Mr Frodo 
said Sam, in spite of private misgivings and a deep regret for the best beer in East Farthing. Then we are going to toil through bog and briar. Let's go now, said Pippin. It was already nearly as hot as it had been the day before, but the clouds were beginning to come up from the west. It looked likely to turn to rain. The hobbits scrambled down a steep green bank and plunged into the thick trees below. Their course had been chosen to leave Woodhill to their left and to cut slanting through the woods that clustered along the eastern side of the hills until they reached the flats beyond. Then they could make straight for the ferry over country that was open, except for a few ditches and fences. Frodo reckoned they had eighteen miles to go in a straight line. He soon found that the thicket was closer and more tangled than it had appeared. There were no paths in the undergrowth, and they did not get on very fast. When they had struggled to the bottom of the bank, they found a stream running down from the hills behind a deeply dug bed with steep slippery sides overhung with brambles. Most inconveniently, it cut across the line they had chosen. They could not jump over it, nor indeed get across it at all without getting wet, scratched and muddy. They halted, wondering what to do. First check, said Pippin, smiling grimly. Sam Ganji looked back. Through an opening in the trees, he caught a glimpse of the top of the green bank from which they had climbed down. Look, he said, clutching Frodo by the arm. They all looked and on the edge high above them they saw against the sky a horse standing. Beside it stooped a black figure. They at once gave up any idea of going back. Frodo led the way and plunged quickly into the thick bushes beside the stream. Phew, he said to Pippin. We were both right. The shortcut has gone crooked already. But we got under cover only just in time. You've got sharp ears, Sam. Can you hear anything coming? They stood still, almost holding their breath as they listened. But there was no sound of pursuit. I don't fancy he would try bringing his horse down that bank, said Sam. But I guess he knows we came down it. We had better be going on. Going on was not altogether easy. They had packs to carry, and the bushes and brambles were reluctant to let them through. They were cut off from the wind by the ridge behind, and the air was still and stuffy. When they forced their way at last into more open ground, they were hot and tired and very scratched, and were also no longer certain of the direction in which they were going. The banks of the stream sank as it reached the levels and became broader and shallower, wandering off towards the marish and the river. Why, this is the Stockbrook, said Pippin. If we are going to try and get back on our course, we must cross at once and bear right. They waded the stream and hurried over a wide open space, rush grown and treeless on the further side. Beyond that, they came again to a bout of trees, tall oaks for the most part, with here and there an elm or an ash. The ground was fairly level and there was little undergrowth, but the trees were too close for them to see far ahead. The leaves blew upwards in sudden gusts of wind, and spots of rain began to fall from the overcast sky. Then the wind died away and the rain came streaming down. 
They trudged along as fast as they could, over patches of grass and through thick drifts of old leaves, and all about them the rain pattered and trickled. They did not talk, but kept glancing back and from side to side. After half an hour, Pippin said, I hope we have not turned too much towards the south. We are not walking longwise through this wood. It is not a very broad belt. I should have said no more than a mile at the widest, and we ought to have been through it by now. It's no good our starting to go in zigzags, said Frodo. That won't mend matters. Let us keep on as we are going. I am not sure that I want to come out into the open yet. They went on for perhaps another couple of miles. Then the sun gleamed out of ragged clouds again, and the rain lessened. It was now past midday, and they felt it was high time for lunch. They halted under an elm tree, its leaves fast turning yellow, were still thick, and the ground at their feet was fairly dry and sheltered. When they came to make their meal, they found that the elves had filled their bottles with clear drink, pale golden in colour. It had the scent of honey made of many flowers, and was wonderfully refreshing. Very soon they were laughing and snapping their fingers at rain and at black riders. The last few miles, they felt, would soon be behind them. Frodo propped his back against the tree trunk and closed his eyes. Sam and Pippin sat near, and they began to hum and then to sing softly. Ho, 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 to the bottle I go, to heal my heart and drown my woe. Rain may fall and wind may blow, and many miles be still to go. But under a tall tree I will lie, and let the clouds go sailing by. Ho, 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 they began again louder, then stopped short suddenly. Frodo sprang to his feet. A long-drawn wail came down the wind, like the cry of some evil and lonely creature. It rose and fell and ended on a high-piercing note. Even as they sat and stood, as if suddenly frozen, it was answered by another cry, fainter and further off, but no less chilling to the blood. There was then a silence, broken only by the sound of the wind in the leaves. Uh, what do you think that was? Pippin asked at last, trying to speak lightly, but quavering a little. If it was a bird, it was one that I had never heard in the Shire before. It was not bird or beast, said Frodo. It was a call or a signal. There were words in that cry, though I could not catch them. But no hobbit! as such a voice. No more was said about it. They were all thinking of the riders, but no one spoke of them. They were now reluctant either to stay or go on, but sooner or later they had got to get across the open country to the ferry, and it was best to go sooner and in daylight. In a few moments they had shouldered their packs again and were off. Before long, the wood came to a sudden end. Wide grasslands stretched before them. They now saw that they had, in fact, turned too much to the south. Away over the flats they could glimpse the low hill of Buckleberry across the river, 
but it was now on their left. Creeping cautiously out of the edge of trees, they set off across the open as quickly as they could. At first they felt afraid, away from the shelter of the wood. Far back behind them stood the high place where they had breakfasted. Frodo half expected to see the small distant figure of a horseman on the ridge dark against the sky, but there was no sign of one. The sun, escaping from the breaking clouds as it sank towards the hills they had left, was now shining brightly again. Their fear left them, though they still felt uneasy. But the land became steadily more tame and well-ordered. Soon they came into well-tended fields and meadows. There were hedges and gates and dikes for drainage. Everything seemed quiet and peaceful, just an ordinary corner of the shire. Their spirits rose with every step. The line of the river grew nearer, and the black riders began to seem like phantoms of the woods now left far behind. They passed along the edge of a huge turnip field and came to a stout gate. Beyond it a rutted lane ran between low, well-laid hedges towards a distant clump of trees. Pippin stopped. I know these fields and this gate, he said. This is Bam Furlong, old farmer Maggot's land. That's his farm away there in the trees. Oh, one trouble after another, said Frodo, looking nearly as much to alarm as if Pippin had declared the lane was the slot leading to a dragon's den. The others looked at him in surprise. What's wrong with old Maggot? asked Pippin. He's a good friend to all the Brandybucks. Of course he's a terror to trespassers and keeps ferocious dogs. But after all, folk down here are near the border and have to be more on their guard. I know, said Frodo, but all the same, he added with a shamefaced laugh. I am terrified of him and his dogs. I have avoided his farm for years and years. He caught me several times trespassing after mushrooms when I was a youngster at Brandy Hall. On the last occasion he beat me and then took me and showed me to his dogs. See, lads, he said, next time this young varmint sets foot on my land, you can eat him. Now see him off. They chased me all the way to the ferry, and I never got over the fright. Though I dare say the beasts knew their business and would not really have touched me. Pippin laughed. Well, it's time you made it up, especially if you're coming back to live in Buckland. Old Maggot is really a stout fellow, if you leave his mushrooms alone. Let's get into the lane, and then we shan't be trespassing. If we meet him, I'll do the talking. He is a friend of Mary's, and I used to come here with him a good deal at one time. They went along the lane until they saw the thatched roofs of a large house and farm buildings peeping out among the trees ahead. The maggots and the paddyfooks of stock, and most of all the inhabitants of Marish, were house-dwellers and this farm was stoutly built of brick and had a high wall all around it. There was a wide wooden gate opening out of the wall into the lane. Suddenly, as they drew nearer, a terrific baying and barking broke out, and a loud voice was heard shouting, Grip! Fang! Wolf! Come on, lads! Frodo and Sam stopped dead, but Pippin walked on a few paces, 
the gate opened and three huge dogs came pelting out into the lane and dashed towards the travellers, barking fiercely. They took no notice of Pippin, but Sam shrank against the wall, while two wolvish-looking dogs sniffed at him suspiciously and snarled if he moved. The largest and most ferocious of the three halted in front of Frodo, bristling and growling. Through the gate there now appeared a broad, thick-set hobbit with a round red face. Hello, hello, and who may you be? And what may you be wanting? he asked. Good afternoon, Mr Maggot, said Pippin. The farmer looked at him closely. Well, if it isn't Master Pippin, Mr Peregrine Took, I should say, he cried, changing from a scowl to a grin. It's a long time since I saw you round here. It's lucky for you that I know you. I was just going out to set my dogs on any strangers. There are funny things going on today. Of course, we do get queer folk wandering in these parts at times, too near the river, he said, shaking his head. But this fellow was the most outlandish I have ever set eyes on. He won't cross my land without leave a second time, not if I can stop him. What fellow do you mean? asked Pippin. Then you haven't seen him, said the farmer. He went up the lane towards the causeway not a long while back. He was a funny customer and asking funny questions. But perhaps you'll come along inside and we're past the news more comfortable. I've a drop of good ale on tap. If you and your friends are willing, Mr Took. It seemed plain that the farmer would tell them more if allowed to do it in his own time and fashion, so they all accepted the invitation. What about the dogs? asked Frodo anxiously. The farmer laughed. <laughs> they won't harm you, not unless I tell them to. Here, Grip, Fang, heel, he cried. Heel, Wolf. To the relief of Frodo and Sam, the dogs walked away and let them go free. Pippin introduced the other two to the farmer. Mr Frodo Baggins, he said. You may not remember him, but he used to live at Brandy Hall. At the name Baggins, the farmer started and gave Frodo a sharp glance. For a moment, Frodo thought that the memory of stolen mushrooms had been aroused and that the dogs would be told to see him off. But Farmer Maggot took him by the arm. Well, if that isn't queerer than ever he exclaimed. Mr Baggins, is it? Come inside. We must have a talk. They went into the farmer's kitchen and sat by the wide fireplace. Mrs Maggot brought out beer and a huge jug and filled four large mugs. It was a good brew and Pippin found himself more than compensated for missing the golden perch. Sam sipped his beer suspiciously. He had a natural mistrust of the inhabitants of other parts of the Shire, and he also was not disposed to be quick friends with anyone who had beaten his master, however long ago. After a few remarks about the weather and the agricultural prospects, which were no worse than usual, Farmer Maggot put down his mug and looked at them all in turn. Now, Mr Peregrine, he said, where might you be coming from and where might you be going to? Were you coming to visit me? For if so, you had gone past my gate without my seeing you. Well, no, answered Pippin. To tell the truth, since you have guessed it, 
We got into the lane from the other end. We had come across your fields, but that was quite by accident. We lost our way in the woods, back near Woodhall, trying to take a shortcut to the ferry. If you were in a hurry, the road would have served you better, said the farmer. But I wasn't worrying about that. You have leave to walk over my land, if you have a mind, Mr. Peregrine. And you, Mr. Baggins, though I dare say you still like mushrooms, he laughed. Ah, yes, I recognise the name. I recollect the time when young Frodo Baggins was one of the worst young rascals of Buckland. But it wasn't mushrooms I was thinking of. I just heard the name Baggins before you turned up. What do you think that funny customer asked me? They waited anxiously for him to go on. Well, the farmer continued, approaching his point with slow relish. He came riding up on a big black horse in at the gate, which happened to be open, and right up to my door, all black he was himself too, and cloaked and hooded up as if he did not want to be known. Now what in the shire can he want, I thought to myself. We don't see many of the big folk over the border, and anyway, I'd never heard of any like this black fellow. Good day to you, I says, going out to him. This lane don't lead anywhere, and wherever you may be going, your quickest way will be back to the road. I didn't like the looks of him, and when Grip came out, he took one sniff and let out a yelp as if he had been stung. He put down his tail and bolted off howling. This black fellow sat quite still. I come from yonder, he said, slow and stiff-like, pointing back west, over my fields if you please. Have you seen Baggins? he asked in a queer voice and bent down towards me. I could not see any face for his hood fell down so low and I felt a sort of shiver down my back but I did not see why he should come riding over my land so bold. Be off, I said. There are no Bagginses here. You're in the wrong part of the Shire. You had better go back west to Hobbington, but you can go by the road this time. Baggins has left, he answered in a whisper. He is coming. He is not far away. I wish to find him. If he passes, you will tell me. I will come back with gold. No, you won't, I said. You go off back where you belong. Double quick. I'll give you one minute before I call all my dogs. He gave a sort of hiss. It might have been laughing, and it might not. Then he spurred his great horse right at me, and I jumped out of the way only just in time. I called my dogs, but he swung off and rode through the gate and up the lane towards the causeway like a bolt of lightning. What do you think of that? Frodo sat for a moment looking at the fire, but his only thought was how on earth they would reach the ferry. I don't know what to think, he said at last. Then I'll tell you what to think, said Maggot. You should never have gone mixing yourself up with Hobbiton folk, Mr Frodo. Folk are queer up there. Sam stirred in his chair and looked at the farmer with an unfriendly eye. But you were always a reckless lad. When I heard you had left the brandy box and gone off with that old Mr Bilbo, I said that you were going to find trouble. Mark my words, this all comes of those strange doings of Mr Bilbo's. His money was gotten some strange fashion in foreign parts, they say. Maybe there is some 
that want to know what has become of the gold and the jewels that he buried in the hill of Hobbington, as I hear. Frodo said nothing. The shrewd guesses of the farmer were rather disconcerting. Well, Mr. Frodo, Maggot went on, I am glad that you had the sense to come back to Buckland. My advice is, stay there, and don't get mixed up with these outlandish folk. You'll have friends in these parts. If any of these black fellows come after you again, I'll deal with them. I'll say you're dead, or have left the Shire, or anything you like. And that might be true enough, for as like as not, it is old Mr Bilbo they want news of. Maybe you're right, said Frodo, avoiding the farmer's eye and staring at the fire. Maggot looked at him thoughtfully. Well, I can see you have ideas of your own, he said. It is as plain as my nose that no accident brought you and that rider here on the same afternoon. And maybe my news was no great news to you, after all. I'm not asking you to tell me anything you have a mind to keep to yourself, but I see that you are in some kind of trouble. Perhaps you are thinking it won't be too easy to get to the ferry without being caught. I was thinking so, said Frodo. But we have got to try and get there, and it won't be done by sitting and thinking, so I am afraid we must be going. Thank you very much indeed for your kindness. I've been in terror of you and your dogs for over thirty years, Farmer Maggot, though you may laugh to hear it. It is a pity, for I've missed a good friend, and now I am sorry to leave so soon, but I'll come back, perhaps, one day, if I get a chance. You'll be welcome when you come, said Maggot. But now I've a notion. It's near sundown already, and we are going to have our supper. For we mostly go to bed soon after the sun. If you and Mr. Peregrine and all could stay and have a bite with us, we would be pleased. And so should we, said Frodo. But we must be going at once, I'm afraid. Even now it will be dark before we can reach the ferry. Ah, but wait a minute. I was going to say... After a bit of supper, I'll get out a small wagon and I'll drive you all to ferry. That will save you a good step and it might also save you trouble of another sort. Frodo now accepted the invitation gratefully, to the relief of Pippin and Sam. The sun was already behind the western hills and the light was failing. Two of the maggot's sons and his three daughters came in and a generous supper was laid on the large table. The kitchen was lit with candles, and the fire was mended. Mrs. Maggot bustled in and out. One or two of the other hobbits belonging to the farm household came in. In a short while, fourteen sat down to eat. There was beer in plenty, and a mighty dish of mushrooms and bacon, besides much other solid farmhouse fare. The dogs lay by the fire and gnawed rinds and cracked bones. When they had finished... The farmer and his sons went out with a lantern and got the wagon ready. It was dark in the yard when the guests came out. They threw their packs on board and climbed in. The farmer sat in the driving seat and whipped up his two stout ponies. His wife stood in the light of the open door. Be careful of yourself, maggot, she called. Don't go arguing with any foreigners and come straight back. I will, he said, and drove out of the gate. 
There was now no breath of wind stirring. The night was still and quiet, and a chill was in the air. They went without lights and took it slowly. After a mile or two, the lane came to an end, crossing a deep dyke and climbing a short slope up to the high-banked causeway. Maggot got down and took a good look either way, north and south, but nothing could be seen in the darkness, and there was not a sound in the still air. Thin strands of river mist were hanging above the dikes and crawling over the fields. It's going to be thick," said Maggot. "But I'll not light my lanterns till I turn for home. We'll hear anything on the road long before we meet it tonight." It was five miles or more from Maggot's Lane to the ferry. The hobbits wrapped themselves up, but their ears were strained for any sound above the creak of the wheels and the slow clop of the ponies' hoofs. The wagon seemed slower than a snail to Frodo. Beside him, Pippin was nodding towards sleep, but Sam was staring forwards into the rising fog. They reached the entrance to the ferry lane at last. It was marked by two tall white posts that suddenly loomed up on their right. Farmer Maggot drew in his ponies, and the wagon creaked to a halt. They were just beginning to scramble out when suddenly they heard what they had all been dreading. Hooves on the road ahead. The sound was coming towards them. Maggot jumped down and stood holding the ponies' heads and peering forwards into the gloom. Clip clop, clip clop came the approaching rider. The fall of the hoofs sounded loud in the still foggy air. You better be hidden, Mister Frodo," said Sam anxiously. "You get down in the wagon and cover up in the blankets, and we'll send this rider to the right abouts." He climbed out and went to the farmer's side. Black riders would have to ride over him to get near the wagon. Clip clop, clip clop, the rider was nearly on them. Hail, hello there! Called Farmer Maggot. The advancing hooves stopped short. They thought they could dimly guess a dark cloaked shape in the mist a yard or two ahead. Now then, said the farmer. Throwing the reins to Sam and striding forward, don't you come a step nearer. What do you want, and what are you doing? I want Mister Baggins. Have you seen him? Said a muffled voice, but the voice was the voice of Mary Brandybuck. A dark lantern was uncovered, and its light fell on the astonished face of the farmer. Mister Mary, he cried. Yes, of course. Who did you think it was? Said Mary, coming forward, as he came out of the mist, and their fears subsided, he seemed suddenly to diminish to ordinary hobbit size. He was riding a pony, and a scarf was swathed around his neck and over his chin to keep out the fog. Frodo sprang out of the wagon to greet him. So there you are at last," said Mary. "I was beginning to wonder if you would turn up at all today, and I was just going back to supper." When it grew foggy, and I came across and rode up towards Stock to see if you had fallen in any ditches, but I am blessed if I know which way you have come. Where did you find them, Mister Maggot? In your duck pond? No, I caught them trespassing," said the farmer, "and nearly set my dogs on them. But they'll tell you all the story, I've no doubt. Now, if you'll excuse me, Mister Mary and Mister Frodo and all. I'll best be turning for home. Missus Maggot will be worrying with the night getting thick. He backed the wagon into the lane and turned it. Well, good.
Good night to you all, he said. It's been a queer day and no mistake, but all's well that ends well, though perhaps we should not say that until we reach our own doors. I'll not deny that I'll be glad now when I do. He lit his lanterns and got up. Suddenly he produced a large basket under the seat. Oh, I was nearly forgetting, he said. Mrs. Maggot put this up for Mr. Baggins with her compliments. He handed it down and moved off, followed by a chorus of thanks and good nights. They watched the pale rings of the light round his lanterns as they dwindled into the foggy night. Suddenly, Frodo laughed. From the covered basket he held, the scent of mushrooms was rising. <laughs>